my beautiful child's mommy's home. She was mommy's body. Oh, he's dead. Look at him, he's dead. No! He's not dead. He's sleeping. Can't you see he's sleeping? You know what I bet he'd love to do? You'd like to dance. Wouldn't you, my darling? Right, you can see for yourself. What? Dance with him. Dance with Charles. Dance with my son. should learn to keep their hands to themselves. Here's yours. It's all because of me that we're here now. Hungry, cold, and hunted. Killer clowns in outer space. Holy shit. The doctor is in. I'm gonna get you, fuckers! I love you, Keith. But all I can see right now is food. Sometimes, that is better. Hey, what's going on, son? It's what's coming off. Your face, clean off. Howdy, howdy, horror heads. Welcome back to Halloween Horrorthon 2 Dead by Pod, our annual October event right here on the Film Effect Podcast, the weekly show that gives you the deepest of dives on a different film each episode in an effort to give it what we like to call the full film effect treatment. I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this is Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. Charles Brady is new in town. You could actually talk to him? Yeah, he's nice. Real nice. The girls all like him. The teachers all respect him. Your teachers in Ohio must have been sorry to lose such a creative young man. The parents all trust him. He's utterly charming. But nobody really knows him. 
like his mother. You cannot be in love with this girl, Charles. You don't know me, Tanya. But I want to. Behind their smile is a secret. Hi. Come in, Tanya. I have something for you. I don't know who you are, but I know you're not who you say you are. Behind the secret is a hunger. Does it have to be her? And behind it all is the imagination of Stephen King. Somebody help me, please! He killed one of my men. He was scared of a cat. Sleepwalkers, a mother and son team of strange supernatural creatures, moves to a small town to seek out a young virgin to feed on. Yeah, so Sleepwalkers, this is an interesting little 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 ditty here. Um, I have a love hate relationship with this movie, and it, it, it harkens back to '92, which I'll get into in a minute here for my first time watching it, and just over the years, just. I, I I hated this movie growing up. Hated it. But as I got older, and what this happened, you know, pretty occasionally, I haven't. I'll it'll be a while since I had seen a movie, and then one of the boutique labels, whether it's Arrow Video or Vinegar Syndrome, Kino Lorber, or Screen Factory, in this case, you know, digs it up and and gives it a whole brand new restoration and puts it out with slaps a bunch of special features on it you get a really cool unique slip cover usually for the first batch of them and that's what Scream Factory did with Sleepwalkers about four or five years ago I want to say uh, might might not even been that long ago might have even been three I don't know it was it was over the last three or four years I guess they put this out and I bought it because that's what I do I'm a collector and I don't know what it is, Corey. I just had this newfound love and respect for this movie. And I've probably watched my Scream Factory disc about five times now. Last night's viewing was like my fifth time watching it since I bought it. Um, and, and yeah, it's it's as simple as that. It's just a movie that I had a hatred for growing up. But then as I got older and I watched it more recently, like there's just something about this movie. It's, it's, it's I don't want to say I love this movie, but... I, I really do like this movie a lot, and I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. And I'm curious as to what you think, although I kind of have an idea of where you lie on this film. So, <laughs> where is that? Where do you lie on Sleepwalkers? Yeah, so I'm pretty similar to you. I saw this movie back in the mid-90s when it was new, and I didn't like it. I thought it was weird. I didn't fully understand what was happening, and right. I didn't think it was scary. Like, I'm watching a horror movie. It's not scary. I, I didn't like it. Uh, but watching it now, like I, I did what you did. I don't own the movie, but I kind of watched it a few years ago, just around Halloween time. And I completely gained a new appreciation for it. Uh, I might not enjoy this movie in the way some people do, but I'm a big fan of movies that are either so weird or so bad or just so off that 
they entertain me. I mean, if anybody listens to fewer casts, they know Justin and myself both have that same affinity for films. Uh, right. it, it doesn't necessarily have to succeed in the way they thought it did. And that's how this movie is. I don't watch it. I'm not scared. I'm not worried about the characters. I'm not invested like that. But I'm totally here to watch the off the wall or listen to the off the wall lines, the crazy gore and Mm -hmm. um, um, transformation effects and just the odd story. I mean, this this movie is just odd, like the whole story. We're going to break it down, obviously. But oh, yeah, it it just boggles my mind how they thought this was going to come out and be like a serious horror movie. I mean, I, I don't know. But I'm entertained by it. And I think if you enjoy movies that are just so odd, they make you laugh. Because I'll be honest, this movie makes me laugh. I will literally sit there and laugh my ass off watching this movie. And I'm not laughing at the people. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just like, I'm just so amazed. Like, it's just the lines are so hilarious in context. Like, I I don't take anything away from anybody. I appreciate that the fact that they made this film. Uh, I, you know, don't take it the way I'm that I'm like laughing at anybody. I think the movie's great. So <laughs> I appreciate Mick cares. I appreciate everybody involved in it and I'm glad I get to watch it. But yeah, it's I don't enjoy it in the way they originally envisioned, but I definitely do uh, appreciate this movie a lot more than I used to. That's for sure. Yeah, it's like that cemetery scene with Brian Krause. It's like he has just got a collection of one-liners and zingers just stuffed in his back pocket that entire sequence and I'm I'm here for every single one of it uh, I'm here for all of it I love it so alright well then um, without further ado let's kick off our breakdown with our first time viewings uh, it's, it's just that you see this is actually uh, my, my first time no no my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time so technically that's my second time and i don't i don't i don't want to suck at it so if i'm not up to- uh this was a rental back in 92 when it first came out uh i actually remember when i watched it because i was oddly enough at my grandmother's i was sick and i kind of had a similar story um well we haven't covered it yet but this kind of ties into the pet cemetery too because it was around that same time. I don't know if it was together or not. But I definitely rented this from the Blockbuster on Merritt Boulevard. And I just remember watching this movie. Um, sick. On the couch. And just really not having much of an opinion of the film after watching it. Because at that point I was eight. So I, I it was just, okay. That was a movie. That was pretty much my reaction after watching it back then. But uh, yeah. I just have... Vivid memories of just being sick, staying at my grandmother's house and watching it on the sofa. So how about you? Yeah, I'm almost wondering if we watched it together. Like, I my memories are fuzzy. Uh, it might have been. I might have had you come over to watch it or something like that. Because I, I would typically do that because you love to go. For disclosure, audience, like, that's how you and I first met. You know, my grandparents lived across the street from your house. And every time I would come down on weekends... Because where I live is like 20 minutes away from where you grew up. And so I would go to visit on weekends. You would be across the street. And that's how we hit it off at a very, very, very young age. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know if this was this might have been one of those films I watched and gave you a call the next day or when I felt better. and was just like, Corey, this is this movie. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, because I have vague memories of watching it with somebody else. Like it, it was just either a rental or on TV. I don't I, I don't have uh 
the best memory of it. I just remember watching it with somebody else and just being baffled by it. Like, I just didn't know what to make of it. I was like, what? <laughs> they can get hurt by cats? And I'm like, why is he turning into a baby? I'm just like, what? what is all this? Like, I didn't know what to make of any of it. But yeah, I distinctly remember watching it with somebody else. So I uh, could have been you could have been somebody else in the neighborhood could have been my brother for all I know. Uh, but right. yeah, at a young age, back when it was new, like right after either came out the video or cable uh, is the first time I watched it. Yep. All right. Well, got a good story for this one. Story time. Tell me a story. Wait. Like my story? No, not your story. A story. Since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper, tell me a story. I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit. But it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. So Steven Spielberg, of all people, made a set visit. While they were doing production of this movie down in uh, Carolina back in uh, 92 or 91 at this point. Because Columbia had three movies down at the studio in production uh, at the same time. Uh, it was Hook, Bram Stoker's Dracula from Francis Ford Coppola, and this, Sleepwalkers. So you put them three films together, tell me which one doesn't belong. So... Hook in the middle, uh, Spielberg in the middle of film, a shooting Hook stopped by, um, and you know, it was just a set visit that people didn't, you know, the the cast and, and crew just had no idea it was happening because, like I said, it was just an unannounced. Hey, I'm in the area. I'm here shooting this Peter Pan movie. Let me go see how my old buddy Mick Garris is up to. Because for those of you who don't know, Mick Garris pretty much started his career uh, with well, he first started it with production he he did a lot of behind the scenes uh documentaries on movies like a lot of special features yeah. he did a lot uh, of like those i saw yeah the, the 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 thing the fog a lot of those big goonies. time horror films the goonies that's another one yes i think he won an award for the goonies i'm not 100 percent. i, on that I remember the goonies personally like i i remember okay. that one i really liked the goonies the the making of that was good yeah so that's where the director of this film mick garris got his start was doing that and then in the mid-80s, uh, Steven Spielberg had this uh, show called Amazing Stories. Uh, it was kind of like, uh, it was an anthology series in the vein of like Tales from the Dark Side or Tales from the Crypt or stuff like that. But it wasn't flat out horror. I mean, I'm sure there were some episodes of horror elements, but for the most part, it was like a fantasy driven show. And Mick Garris, you know, got his toes wet by, you know, directing an episode or two on that show. And since... Spielberg was the executive producer of the series. He had known Garris from back then. So, like I said, at the time they were filming this, of all people, Stephen, Stephen King Sleepwalkers during the uh, production, just Steven Spielberg just walks in. Huh. I see a mother and son fucking on the, on the bed there. That's nice. <laughs> Whatever scene they were shooting at that day. But, uh, yeah, I've always found that to be a pretty funny story. And, uh, Hearing Mick Garris talk about it, it's also funny. Uh, I should also mention or, or plug his show. Mick Garris has a podcast, uh, Postmortem, that he has huh. every week. That I didn't I'm know a big that. fan of. Yeah, every Wednesday. Uh, one week he'll have a guest, and then the following week he'll do a Ask Me Anything episode. And the week after that, he'll be back to a guest. And then the week after, Ask Me Anything. That's how he does it every week. And every Wednesday morning, um, 
episodes drop. Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't know that, Corey. It's a really good series. I've, I've been listening to that show for about a year now. Huh. Yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of it, but uh, I might check it out for sure. It sounds uh, interesting. Ah, definitely. All right, well, before we dive into the plot, let's do our live top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Mm. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a- Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection, the song is Radiation oh. Ruling the all right, Speaking of Mick Garris, let's do top five favorite Mick Garris films. This is an easy one. I'm just going to shoot through the list. My number five is Riding the Bullets. Little f- production that he did in the mid-alts. Stephen, Stephen King adaptation, again. He did a bunch of those. And um, with um, David Arquette. And um, not really going to get into the actual the movie. But it's got some really good effects. A little cheesy. Um, a little dated. But it's still a, a movie I've watched a couple times that I've always enjoyed. How about you? Yeah, uh, our list are starting out the same. My number five is also Riding the Bullet. Uh, I got interested in that film because of the roller coaster uh, tie-in with it. I remember on the commercials that the roller coaster was like, oh, that sounds cool. And I like Arquette. So I gave it a try. And yeah, it's definitely like a fun little movie. It's like a fun little TV movie that I really enjoyed. Uh, You know, as far as Stephen King adaptations, I think it's obviously not the best, but I think it's a pretty good adaptation. And pretty enjoyable. So yeah, even if you're not sure what the story is, totally just give it a watch. It's it's pretty entertaining. Agreed. All right, number four for me is the series that he got after doing this, and that's Stephen King's The Shining. Um, you know we have laughs about that <laughs> during uh, previous episodes and whatnot. Oh, that's not on my list. <laughs> it's on mine. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that. I'm a, such a fan of the Kubrick version. Uh, yeah, I've I watched the miniseries. I was excited, and yeah, sorry, Stephen Weber with a croquet mallet didn't do it for me. So, uh, but anyway, my number four is this <laughs> film, uh, Sleepwalkers. Uh, huge fan of the film. Like I said, uh, it's definitely wouldn't have been on my list years and years ago. Uh, but yeah, my affinity. Each time I watch it, I just find more entertainment. So yeah, absolutely made my list number four, Sleepwalkers. All right, number three, Psycho 4, The Beginning. This was a Showtime movie back in 1990, and I watched it a bunch of times growing up. It had Henry Thomas, little Elliot from E.T., as uh, young Norman Bates, and Olivia Hussey plays his mother, Norma, and it's, it's, you know, and CCH Pounder is in it as this, uh, like talk show radio host who Norman Bates is like talking to throughout the movie because it's a it serves as a prequel but it's also a sequel because you have present day or at the time at, at that time's present uh, variation of Norman Bates uh, again uh, played by Anthony Perkins in what I believe was his final performance before he unfortunately passed away but I've always been a fan of Psycho Four. Um, it's not talked about. It really isn't. I don't understand it. Um, 
You know, everyone talks about the first film because it's a fucking classic. It's Hitchcock. But over the last decade, I want to say, two and three have really found their audience and have become, you know, more and more liked and talked about, which I like because I've always been a fan of those two movies. Never got the hate for it. But now that, you know, people are starting to come on to it, um, it's good. And then so I got the... uh, fourth one i own the screen factory versions of two three and four so when i naturally picked this up about a year ago um i revisited it and it still holds up so yeah happy to say my number three is still psycho for the beginning yeah that's one i haven't seen in such a long time i can't really form an opinion on uh but i want to go back and watch them all because i've seen the original two quite a bit you know obviously the first one which is Car classic and then uh the second one which is really good and better than any sequel uh should be that that took that long to make and by different filmmaker right. yeah the second one's awesome but i gotta rewatch the fourth one i haven't seen that um, I'll, I'll lay them on you if you don't have it yeah yeah i don't own any of them but the original okay 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 perfect i'll leave parts two three and four on you whenever you're yeah. ready um, all right well then my number three is The Stand, um, another um, Stephen King adaptation, little mini series that I really enjoyed. I remember it was a big thing when it came on TV. Like you know, a lot of those Stephen King miniseries back then were a big deal, and I remember really liking The Stand. It has some good star power, like Gary Sinise in the lead role, Molly Ringwald, uh, Ray Walston, uh, Mr. Hand, he's in there too, in a, <laughs> a little part. But uh, That's right. I like the stand. I like the whole idea of, uh, you know, like just basically Judgment Day coming. So it's a really cool miniseries. Uh, it's definitely early 90s. I know there's a newer version out now, but I think the old one's still worth checking out for sure. So, yeah, number three of the stand. Never seen it. Can't comment on it. Heard good things, but never really had the patience to sit down and watch that lengthy, uh, what is it, a four hour event or something like that. I knew yeah. it was on for like two nights when it was on TV. Yeah, it's like four or five hours, pretty long. Okay. I will. Eventually. I, mean, I sat through The Irishman in, in the theater so I can get through uh, that at home. Easy peasy. All right, number two, Sleepwalkers, for reasons that we're going to get into. <laughs> so my number two is one that's a personal favorite to mine. And, uh, you know, there obviously there is uh, other directors on there, but... He did uh, Freddy's Nightmares, which I'm a huge fan of the TV series Freddy's Nightmares. He did one episode, um, yeah. but I just used to love Freddy's Nightmares. It was introed by Robert England. Oh, my God. I just love that show. I, I got I don't know if it's available to buy, but I, I want to wa- rewatch those so bad as a kid. When I saw that pop up on there, it didn't even matter. I, I honestly don't know what episode uh, he directed, but I loved all of them. So I had to put Freddy's Nightmares on there in number two. That works. I just love hey, it so much. It, it definitely works. Um, I believe that they're putting that out. Some company, I, I heard rumblings that it might be getting a physical media release in either December or January. But um, I'm not holding my breath. That's why I haven't mentioned it. It's just like I said rumblings little trinkles of information i've heard that you know may or may not be from the most reliable sources so until then number one 
Critters 2, the main course. I, th- I think this is your number one as well. I'm just knowing you and Hell process yeah. of elimination. Okay, <laughs> then we can just together. Number one, unanimously, Critters 2, the main course. I mean, come on, it's Critters 2. It's the best of the series, first and foremost. It's Hell got yeah. the Easter Bunny death, which is an all-timer. And it's just fun, you know? It's just always a fun movie. Got the bounty hunters that come back down. I love the bit where the, the female one sees the, the stand-up uh, uh, Freddy Krueger because it was 88 and New Line that was all the rage back then past the Freddy built and as she's going to like morph into Freddy Krueger um, what's his face Charlie comes over and like stops her or stops it rather because um, they're just space bounty hunters they have no form whatsoever they they take the form of whoever they come across of, uh, come across with in, in, um, in our world but yeah, Critters too, dude. And just the Vic Garris is so genius. The whole L, the, the the critters having him set this in Easter because they resemble little eggs. It's just it's so good. It's it's uh we gotta cover those films one of these days. Yeah, Critters too, like you said, easily the best of the franchise. I mean, the first one's enjoyable, but uh, Critters oh, two yeah. definitely takes that and just perfects it. It is just they're all enjoyable, in my opinion. Even that third one, I I enjoy some things about it. Yeah, they're all enjoyable, but the second one is definitely the highlight. I'm I have a soft yes. spot for uh, all those type movies, like uh, you know, obviously Gremlins is the biggest and best one. And then uh, Critters isn't too far behind, in my opinion. Then even like the shittier ones like Ghoulies and fucking Hobgoblins. Like, I, I love yeah. all that. Oh, yeah. I have a special uh, place in my heart for those. And Critters, too, just does it so well. Just so hilarious. So ridiculous. And just so funny. It knows exactly what it's trying to do and uh, does it very well. And it's just a fun ride where you see like little creatures run amok. I mean, how can you not? Love that. So yeah, Critters 2 easily. I mean, when you said Mick Garris, I was like, well, shit, I know what my number one is. Now I got to figure out what the rest of it's going to be. Because, <laughs> I, you know, I know he was big on Stephen King stuff. But uh, yeah. I was like, yeah, Critters 2 for sure. Easily number one. But like, not even close. Like, it, like, it's by a wide margin for me that it's number one. And yeah, speaking of Scream Factory, they put out that box set a few years back with uh, all four of the films. And uh, yeah. Highly recommend it. Well, I recommend anything Scream Factory puts out, but I really recommend that Critters box set that they did about three or four years ago. So, all right, well, without further ado, let's talk about Stephen King's Sleepwalkers. Right, so, originally Rupert Wainwright was going to be the director, the director of Blank Check and Stigmata, of all films, but he left the film and was replaced by Mick, who had met with the studio, but uh, had been passed over in favor of uh, Rupert. According to Mick Garris, Wainwright had made changes to the script that the studio and Stephen King, who had director approval, didn't approve of. King approved Garris as the director since he was a big fan of Psycho 4, The Nightmare. I mean, the original. Yeah. Psycho 4, The Beginning. That name throws me off. Psycho 4, that's why I'm having trouble pronouncing it. It's not even a pronunciation thing. It's the fact that it came out around the same time as The Howling 4. 
and the howling for is called the original nightmare. So I've always, for the life of me, I've always gotten howling for and psycho fours subtitle, not subtitle, whatever the uh, or um. I, I just get them mixed up, Psycho Four and and Howling Four, and that's why one's called the the, the the um the beginning, and one's called the original Nightmare, and they're both horror movies. So, anyway, um, the second Stephen King film that came out in '92, along with the uh, you know, what was the first one, Corey? What was the other Stephen King film that came out in 1992? I'm gonna put you on the spot. Don't Google it. Uh, not sure, cause uh, he had so much stuff coming out. True, true. I mean, it's tough 90s. to, like, the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, it's just, like, so much. Yeah, honestly, I have no idea. I wouldn't even hazard a guess. Lawnmower Man. Came out a f- <laughs> I fucking love Came out a few Man. weeks, a few <laughs> weeks earlier in March. This came out in April. The film was cut for an all rating after receiving four consecutive NC-17 ratings from the NPA. Among the violence cut was Charles removing the corkscrew from his eye and Mary spitting out the fingers that she bit off of Captain Soames. Um, Sleepwalkers was also the very first time Stephen King wrote a screenplay intended for the screen first rather than adapting one from his already existing novels. Um, instead, of, instead of celebrating the premiere, uh, Brian, Krause, Brian Krause spent overnight in Orange County Jail for unpaid parking tickets. In total, he would serve a 45-day stint and gave another prisoner his lunch so he wouldn't tell the rest of the population that he was the star of the number one movie in America. Um, that's funny. Um, Brian Krause, we're going to get into him in a little bit. This is like the one thing I know him from, and that's pretty much it. I know he's a bigger name than, than Sleepwalkers, but I don't know. I just I can't put my finger on whatever else he's done rather than this movie. He just reminds me of someone who just naturally came off of the set from Beverly Hills 90210. Or or Melrose Place, one of those type shows. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree. <laughs> yeah. And then finally the film was overall shot in Franklin Canyon Park, which is located in Los Angeles, California. And now to the actual film, we get treated to a definition of Sleepwalker from the, I'm going to butcher this, the uh, Chili Coat Encyclopedia of Arcane Knowledge, the first edition. It says, noun, uh, nomadic shape-shifting creatures with human and feline organs. And then it burns up as we get the opening scene, which is in Bodega Bay, California. Hey, kids, Mark Hamill. He's the sheriff of this town, apparently, and <laughs> he's got, I guess that's his deputy next to him. Yeah, like, dude, so he just fucking, shows up. He's like so 80s, like fucking TJ Hooker type cop looking in this part. I love that it. That stash, that fucking mustache, dude, I love it. I know, I was like, is, um, that, is that Skywalker? At first, I like did a double take when I rewatched it, because I forgot he was... Comp- I just totally forgot he was in this film. I, I had to like do a double take. Is that fucking Luke Skywalker with a big-ass stash? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people that show up in this movie, uh, which we'll get into in a little bit. But no, Mark Hamill uh, and a bunch of dead cats that are hanging outside of this, this building that they enter. Uh, I guess it's like a hotel or something. I don't know. Whenever I think about uh, whenever I think about Bodega Bay, I think about Puppet Master. 
because that takes place at Bodega Bay as well. Um, so yeah, he finds this dead 14-year-old girl, this skeleton remains, rather, of a 14-year-old girl in the air, in the, uh, in, in the closet. out on screaming skeletons uh this fucking thing just falls out of the closet screaming like she's got a full developed set of lungs or something like that it's it, it to my to this day this scene's always bugged the shit out of me because this corpse yeah, just falls out of the closet screaming like what how are you screaming you're a corpse you're a fucking skeleton yeah i don't understand that either it's one of those musical uh cues that just don't make any sense, and I feel like somebody just throws it in there because ah, like we're gonna be scared. You're gonna scream, you know. Ooh, boo! It's like uh, <laughs> fucking. <laughs> uh, so this entire pre-credit scene was actually added last minute because um, the audience test the audience tested poorly to the film, um, and they got this shot. He asked Mark Hamill to come on board because Mick Garris is a, he's a friend of Mick Garris's. Um, because Mick Garris's first job was on Star Wars as a receptionist. So he had known Mark Hamill. And so, yeah, they, they um, do this, followed by opening credits set to old ancient writings on feline, feline folklore, I guess. Um, I just, I like. I like the fact they're trying to fix the movie with a uh, Mark Hamill intro. Like, well, like, well, what are we going to do? But like, ah, get Luke Skywalker. Everybody likes that guy. He'll <laughs> <laughs> fix our test screenings. Right. Since people don't know what to make of this fucking crazy movie. Mark Hamill, you're my only hope. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. uh, Gary said that there's a couple ideas that he had to put into the film that hadn't been, st- that, that weren't in Stephen King's original script. One, is the introduction and title sequence, like I said, this that we're talking about, the whole pre-credit scene and the opening credits, and then there's another one that occurs later on. Um, no, speaking of the book of arcane knowledge, total bullshit. Garris made that up. <laughs> if you didn't, if you didn't already know, if you had to be told, then yeah. During a Q and A about five years ago, when they were doing a 25th celebration for the film. Mick Garris revealed that the Enya song, Bodakai, was chosen for the film because of all the songs provided to him at Sony Music at the time for cross-promotion, it was the only song that he felt fit the, the tone of the movie. It's a good choice. I like this mo- the, the, the Enya song that plays. Um, I'm not sure if it's in the beginning. I know it's at the end of the movie. It plays over the end credits. Um, I don't know. I, I've always enjoyed it. It's... It's been good. Um, 
So now we're in Travis, Indiana, introduced to Charles Brady, Brian Krause, and his mother Mary, who's uh, played by Alice Krieger, at their home. And they're both new in town. Yeah, board queen. Board queen, yes. Um, she's also Everybody. Love that her face is mother in the new Chainsaw Massacre movie. Well, you know what I saw her in more recently? And it was really good. It was that Gretel and Hansel movie. Is like okay, that. you're this. You're the third person to say that's a good movie, and I've heard a lot of people say it's not. So I should trust it's, your. Well, word? it's an odd movie. Uh, if you like like a grim fairy tale type movie, uh, and if if visuals can really interest you, because that movie visually is just insane, and uh, the performance she turns in is just great. I mean, she's a great uh, physical actress or actor. Um, you know, she was good in Borg Queen, like, with all the makeup on with that. Uh, I feel like that's what most people would know her from. Uh, Probably. But, yeah, she just looks so creepy and odd and just just the way, like, physically she just looks and moves around in that film, the Gretel and Hansel. It just creeps you out. It just, make, it just makes my skin, like, just crawl a little bit watching it. And uh, just the way she delivers her lines in the film. And But, yeah, visually, it's a short movie. It's simple. Uh, but it's very heavy in like the visuals and atmosphere. So if, if you're the type of person that that can carry a short movie for you, I think it's worth watching. Mm-hmm. Right on Hansel, it's a really cool like grim fairy tale with a different spin on it. It's not just uh, a normal retelling. Well, what, what, what piqued my interest was the fact that it's directed by Oz Perkins, who, funny enough, is the son of Anthony Perkins, who we just talked about a few minutes ago. Um, he directed that movie and he's also an actor in case you didn't know he played the young Norman Bates in Psycho 2 but growing up he was a lot of people are going to probably remember him from Legally Blonde he played uh, dorky David Kidney and then he was also in a a criminally underrated horror film from 2004 called Dead and Breakfast that also has um, (laughs) I've seen that movie (laughs) Yeah, dude, it's got fucking uh, what's his face? Um, Jeffrey Dean Morgan's in that movie. David Carradine, yep. his his daughter it's got Ever Carradine. A lot of stars. I Jer- watched it for the Jeremy title. Jeremy Sisto. Yeah, Do Jeremy I? Sisto. Yep, I watched it for the title. I was like, "Dead and Breakfast sold." I'll watch it. Yeah, exactly. And um, the the singer for the van the, the band the Verve Pipe also is in the movie. But no, the the, the film itself, dude. Uh, I haven't seen it in a handful of years, but I loved it when it first came out. It was one of those films that um, Anchor Bay put out, and it was, of course, direct-to-DVD, and remember remember my friend Dan, Dan the Man, we called him, Big Dan? Yeah. Uh-huh. He got it. He bought it, and I went to his house one night, and we watched it, and I was taken back at how good it was. I actually went and got myself a copy, a copy that is since been lost in many many yeah. moves I've made but yeah I've always been a fan of Down and Breakfast and, it, and that's what Oz Perkins is also in what's that yeah no I was gonna say I remember Dan he always had like the shitty horror movies I, I remember watching a lot of them at his house <laughs> yeah that was fun uh, but anyway yeah I'll be honest I pirated the movie this is back 
uh, when I was in college, I torrented a lot of films. I don't do that oh, anymore. Yeah. I, you know, I make enough money, I can buy my. Own I don't movies. think you can. I don't think torrents really a thing anymore because of all the, 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 the FCC or whatever probably cracked down. Yeah, I'm not I'd sure. Imagine. I don't know. I, I haven't checked. I haven't. I haven't torn. I haven't even said the word torrent in like a decade. Yeah, me neither. I, I, it used to be all the rage. I used to do it because I was a broke college kid, and I would still buy stuff that I really liked. Uh, you know, but cause uh, you know, I don't, you know, when you're a poor kid, you want to watch stuff, but like as an adult, don't steal stuff, just support your movies, buy the movie, you know, that, that's the way I look at it now. But yeah, it, it just takes me back. Cause I had so many of those like B horror movies downloaded on my computer back then. I, I had a whole big collection of that stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, we got sidetracked. <laughs> we're meeting them. No, uh, no, you're fine. You're totally fine. So yeah, back to um, Charles. So they're both new in town, and he's going to school with this girl, Tanya, who we're going to meet in a little bit. And when we first see him at the house, he's listening to that song that we hear throughout the movie, the Sleepwalkers theme, if you will. And he's going through the yearbook, and he carves a T for... Tanya, obviously, into his arm with a knife. So, obsession, a little, maybe, perhaps. Tanya, then, we were introduced to her working at the local movie theater concession stand. And enter Charles. Oh, I should back up. She's uh, played by Machen Amick, is how you pronounce her name. Yeah, Tanya, Machen Amick, like I said, working at the local theater concession stand. Charles comes in, and she's pretty. He's cute. She's and dancing. She's getting down right there, man. You scared me. I'm sorry. Charles Brady. Thanks for the help, Charles Brady. Don't mention it. Could I get a popcorn and a medium, Mr. Pitt, please? Yes. I'm very embarrassed. <laughs> Am I blushing? You look good in red, Tonya. How'd you know my name? English. Period for creative writing, Mr. Fallows. The weird and terrible. Oh, you're the new guy. From Ohio? Paradise Falls. Oh. Go ahead. You mean Frank? I was surprised at how long Garris just let this continue. Because um, it's kind of like a number. Because, you know, you think she starts dancing. She's going to dance for a little bit. And then he's going to pop up behind her and scare her. Well, he does that. But Nick Garris just lets her go through, like, pretty much the entire song. Dancing around this fucking lobby trying to vacuum and shit. <laughs> um, it's funny. So, yeah, they, they make plans to go to the 
Homeland Cemetery together on their first date. Okay? So we're at school then, and Charles and Tanya were in Mr. Fallow's creative writing class. And this scene essentially just serves as a setup for an upcoming death scene. (laughs) But it also gives us some more Otho. Otho. Otho, Otho, Otho. Otho from, from Beetlejuice, of course. But we just talked about him not even a month ago for, um, Christ, what was that? We've done so many episodes. What the hell was he in that we were talking about? Um, I don't know. Heathers. Heathers. Oh, yeah, Heathers. That's right. Yeah, it all blends together, kind of. <laughs> it, it has. It has. Um, so, yeah, he's a real dick. Just does not like Charles for whatever reason at, at just right off the cuff. Um, so then he drives Tanya home. Charles, that is, not Otho. From school, and the two are in her... They go to, inside the house, up to her room. Well, before they go to her room, he, like, takes an interest in her mom's tombstone rubbing, because that's what she's into. Different. I gotta say, this is where you can obviously tell that Stephen King wrote the screenplay, because we have a character who's into tombstone rubbing, something you never fucking hear about. In fact, I can't name another movie where the words tombstone rubbing are even put together. I think... So it's a thing. I think it was more of a thing back, uh, you know, like, I don't want to say olden times, but like maybe 70s, 80s, like I think... Uh, even further back than that, it, it was more of a thing, but what? it is just odd. Like, you have this normal-looking suburban house, and then you have these fucking gravestone rubbings hanging up on the wall, like, and then you eventually meet her mom, and it's just like, I don't know, the two don't compute with me at all. Like, it, not the fact that she does the gravestone rubbing, just the fact that the mom doesn't seem like the type of person that would do to me. I don't know. Because right at first, when... You know, they're introduced, and he mentions the tombstone rubbing, and he lies and says that that's also something that he's interested in. And she kind of challenges him, like, right off the bat. She's like, oh, you do this too? What do you use? And he's like, uh, number five, uh, but I try not to something something. I don't know the word. I just remember the word number five, or the, the, the term number five being his answer. But, um, because I know jack shit about tombstone rubbing. But, <laughs> yeah, dude. They, I just thought that was kind of weird. She just kind of, like, challenges him at first. Like, you know, I like it. Oh, you do? What do you use? Yeah, yeah because she oh, knew he was okay. probably bullshitting her. That's why. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. This is, uh, she, I mean, she's got framed rubbings on the wall and everything. So, you know, it's just these two... Hitting it off, getting to know one another, being cute, because these two actors are definitely fucking, they got the look, I'll tell you that. Goddamn, Amick is just gorgeous in this movie. Um, yeah, they then, both, I, I'll say this real quick while- Both of them, even Charles, man, he's fucking, he's a young stud, dude. Yeah, I, I'll say uh, both of them for this part of the role work really well, like as far as them being like a couple or uh, at least starting the date and being high school kids like both uh, Brian Krause and um, Amick, like they're both really good, like in that aspect, like as far as like the teen dating and courting, like I totally believe the chemistry between the two. I totally believe that they're 
young and uh, starting to date. Like that part of the movie actually works <laughs> as okay. intended. I'll say that. I was going to ask you that question. I was going to ask you how you felt about their ages, if you felt that they looked the part. Because I've heard yeah, some people so. say in forums and, and some reviews I was reading from my research here, a lot of people, that was one of their gripes, was the fact that they looked nothing like, you know, 17 or 18, however old they're supposed to be. Because I think I mean, they're they both, look- like, they were both 23 or 24. They're both young. They're both still very young at the time. Maybe and I, maybe it's an older thing. I believe thing. it, personally. Yeah, maybe it's because... I, I buy it. I buy it, too. Like, maybe it's two things. One, the era you're in, you had 20... Like, that was the norm. A 24-year-old playing a 17-year-old was the norm back then. Nowadays, I know right. they try to stray closer to the ages that they're portraying, but back then, that... I mean, 90210, people were, like, almost in their 30s, you know? It's just... Like that's that's very true. It's just the way it was back then in like the eighties and nineties. And two, it could just be a fact that I'm getting older now. Maybe I'm like, oh, they look yeah, not. I mean, I'm fucking old. I'm <laughs> right. thirty six, but right. I'm like, oh yeah, they look like high school kids. And it just could be me just getting older. I'm just, I see a young twenty something, and I'm like, oh yeah, they could be in high school. You no, know, it could be that too. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, while they're driving home, or while he's driving home from um, her place. Charles gets stopped by his English teacher, Mr. Fallows, and <laughs> Fallows tries to blackmail Charles on grounds that there's no such place as Paradise Falls in Ohio, it's so, and that it's Charles' so transcripts are fake. Yeah, well, I got a question for you fakes. after this. Clever fix, he says, and then he rips his... He, Charles responds by ripping his hand off, and he's like, you're right, Mr. Fallows. People should really keep their hands to themselves. Here's yours. With a smirk on this fucking face. I love it. This is it's it. your new environment boring isn't it disneyland for cows but for human beings well i like it it's kind of peaceful reminds you of ohio i suppose yeah well you know no actually i don't charles i don't know and you don't either there is no paradise falls in ohio your transcripts are also fakes. Clever fakes, but fakes. Anything to say? You're mistaken. Oh, no, I'm not. But you are, Charles. If you think you can wiggle out of this. I don't know who you are, but I know you're not who you say you are. If this is blackmail, Mr. Fallis, I think you picked the wrong guy. This car is the only expensive thing I've gotten, and I'm kind of sentimental about it. I don't think I can sell it. Your generation is so mercenary, Charles. Money this, money that. Well, money is not the only medium of exchange. You're right, Mr. Fowles. People really should learn to keep their hands to themselves. 
Here's yours. This whole encounter, like, uh, well, how the fuck did the teacher find him? Like, he just was out driving to pull him over, and then, like... Oh, I never thought about that. He was probably following him. I guess. I don't know. Like, he just pulls him over. Here's why. Let me ask you a question. Do you... We're... Okay. Um, do you think that there was something more to this scene? What I'm getting at is apparently... And this is the first time I realized it or heard of heard of it and then watched it and, and saw it, I guess. But he's sexually coming on to Charles. You ever got did you get that impression? That he's oh, coming on to him in a sexual manner? That's what I always assumed. I always assumed that uh the teacher or Otho that's what, I'm just gonna call him Otho. I always assumed that Otho was a closeted gay uh dude who just hates himself because you know, he's gay, but he doesn't, like, want to admit he's gay. Or doesn't want to tell anybody he's gay. Right, 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 So, right. I mean, look who you have playing. You have fucking Otho. Of course, uh, you know... Glenn Shaddix. Yep, you're going to get that kind of vibe anyway. Because he plays that role so well. And then, yeah, absolutely, I think it's a sexual thing. I mean, he says there's more uh, things that you can barter with than currency. But, yeah, just, like, the whole scene is just so fucking random out of nowhere. I'm like, okay, the teacher's pulling him over? Why the fuck is the teacher having a traffic stop? And then he, like, says the about the transcripts, and I'm like, well, okay, like, I guess he's gonna blackmail, but why would you do it on the side of the road? Why wouldn't you just do it, like, I don't know, like, it's just an odd, like, you see him at school every day. It's just an odd place or time to pick. And then the whole hand thing just, <laughs> it's the fucking most hilarious <laughs> shit I've ever seen, like, it's, great. it's the delivery. It's the whole scene itself to begin with, and then the, the delivery of it. Like, I agree with you. you sh we should keep our hands to ourselves. Here's yours. Just the way he says Here's it. Here's yours. <laughs> like, just so fucking nonchalant. Here's yours. He says it almost like a. He says it with. Yeah, he's, he's still got his, like, charm. But yeah, he says he's it like being a slick. He's being sort of. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's that's a good way of putting it. Um, oh, Glenn Shaddix, uh, who is. Uh, homosexual in real life of course so Th that I don't know dude I never thought of it and and to hear you even say that you've always interpreted it that way I, I, I question myself like for not seeing it or, you know or whatever I, I don't know this was the first time though um cause I was watching it and as I watch when I do my research you know I also have um other notes up from other sources and I'm looking at it and it mentions the him coming on to him in a sexual manner and I'm like what okay so um yeah but anyway. the whole scene's hilarious like you're it is when you're watching this movie this is what you're waiting for like this scene he hands him a fucking fake hand back and then just the look on Otho's face he's like huh uh, he fucking fumbles with it it's just it's so ridiculous like Nobody's going to find this scary, but uh, you can find it funny. I do. Yeah, he gives him his hand, drops it, and he starts running. Like He's like running away, crying out, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he just like runs headfirst into a goddamn tree stump and knocks himself down. And that gives Charles an easy kill. Uh, so Charles carries on. No, the whole scene, like, when Charles is killing him, it just looks so hilarious because, like, the camera's panning, like, zooming down. The overhead. As, uh, yeah, overhead. the overhead. 
yep, as Charles is leaning over him, but it doesn't even look like he's like eating him or biting him. It just looks like Charles's head is fucking he's just moving his head, going back and forth because it's like fucking a foot away from him. <laughs> <laughs> It just could be because his head's just like he's like motorboating him or something. I know he's motorboating out though. He's like you motorboating son of a bitch. He's like, like yeah, you old sailor, you. It's just hilarious. Guy fucking <laughs> Nick Garris is like, just put your head down on his chest and move it around, like ind- indicating you're gnawing on him or something. It, it could be an uh, HD. It could be an HD thing, but I I noticed that for the first time no. rewatching it now. I didn't never noticed it before, but just now. All right, so Charles carries on with his day, and then we're introduced to Clovis. Clovis the cat, with uh, Deputy Andy Andy Simpson, played by Dan Martin, big character actor from the '90s. Dan Martin popped up in fucking Beverly Hills Cop Three, one of my favorite scenes. He plays one of the mercenaries who gets killed during that earthquake simulator ride that they have in that film, and Axel Foley goes behind him his corpse and like moves his arms and he tells the guys that went up the hill he's like he went up those stairs that's my favorite part involving Dan Martin uh Dan Martin's also fucking um he's in one of my favorite episodes of Tales from the Crypt with uh Brian Johnston the episode with Lumberjack it also had um Michelle oh I'm drawing a blank what's her name She's in Waxwork. She was also in Dr. Giggles, which we'll be talking about very, very soon. Um, Michelle Johnson. She's also in that. Anyway, <laughs> getting off subject here. Let's reel it back in. So, yeah, Dan Martin's all, and, and it's 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 a really good episode. But, yeah, this. Uh, still working. Beverly today. Hills Cop 3. Still working. And he was also in Heat. How can I forget yeah. Heat? He plays one of the, the uh, detectives. I was surprised you didn't uh, bring him and up yeah. Heat. Yeah, he. He's and, in a um, lot of. He's in a lot of stuff still. Like he was in uh, that series. I big watched. character actor. Character actor. He was. Uh, he had a pretty good part in that Your Honor series, the limited series with uh, Brian Cranston on uh, Showtime. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what it is. I, just, I, I didn't get to watch it. It was a good. It was a good. It was better. It was really good. It started out really, really good, and then it ended. It was like, yeah, it was okay. But he had a pretty good. Okay. Um, he had a pretty good role in that. Yeah. Because I see that he was also in uh, Mick Garris' last film, Nightmare in Cinema, that came out uh, a few years ago. So, yeah, he's still getting work. And I see here he was also in Better Call Saul recently, playing a judge. Yeah. So, yeah, d- char- big character actor Dan Martin. Um, and he, like I said, he's the deputy with uh, Clovis the Cat playing with him. Get the bad guy! Get the bad guy! Get the bad guy! Motherfucker! <laughs> good boy, Clovis. Yeah, that's a good boy. How oh, Clovis? Oh, I love the fucking relationship between these two. I know it's just a fucking cat, but I love Dan Martin and this cat Clovis together in this movie. Um, so Charles is having fun. Trying to outrun, cause I I, I skipped the part, cause cause like he's 
doing radar. And just Charles flies right past him. And so they go after him. Yeah, which and is like, again, why? Why is he speeding past the cop? Like, does he want to get caught? I don't understand I mean, this. It's just, dude, it's an open road. Nothing going on. He's young and dumb. You I and I know. would be the same way, probably. I, You know. If I just murdered um, my teacher, I think I'd be driving a little more cautious. That's true. I never thought about it. I forgot we killed Otho last scene. So Charles is having fun with this situation. And he's just fucking going back and forth, playing with them and shit on the road. And it gets serious, though, when he sees Clovis pop up. And his face just starts shifting into this cat form, into a baby, okay, and then baby. a human. <laughs> Confusing Andy, like, what the fuck? The baby gets me and, every time. I know. When it looks like Charles isn't going to outrun Andy, he pulls off the road and turns invisible along with the car. And Andy stops there with Clovis, and he's looking around, and Clovis can see Charles, because he's a cat. They're both cats, essentially. So Clovis can see Charles, and Carl- Charles ain't having it. He's just like, Stop looking at me, you fucking cat! I lost him. How in the hell did I do that? Stop looking at me, you fucking cat! And then finally Andy gives up, and Charles makes his car turn from blue to red, and he drives back in the other direction. So yeah, this morphin effect was uh, pretty big for its time. We, prior to this film, it had only been do- been done in the Michael Jackson video for Black and White, and then this was the second feature, the first film to have this effect here and you know this is a, it's a it's a cool effect but it's also a dated effect i don't know how you feel about it but i think I, that the, the morphine it's, it's like an effect for its time i like it i um, think i think for its time it looked really good and i still think today it looks charming like i i don't know i i think it looks okay does it look a little dated sure like i mean you can watch it and tell it's definitely like a 90 a little dated it's not terrible I mean, we're not talking about, you know, Mike, Michael Paré's werewolf transformation in Bad Moon again. No, we're talking <laughs> about just a, 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 a legit effect shot that was pretty groundbreaking and went on to be used in hundreds of thousands or, or, or of, of movies, of commercials, TV shows, you name it. This morphine effect's been done to death. But this was the first. Um, so we got Andy back at the station trying to tell Sheriff and his bumbling deputy Horace about what happened. And Horace suggests that he takes some upcoming vacation time while Sheriff tells him not to mention what he just said to them while following his paperwork. And yeah, everyone's just... Your typical hard trope. You see something, you tell the whole world, no one believes you. It's kind of like a boy who cried wolf situation. Um, so yeah, we see cats beginning to just a mass in, in, in <laughs> quantity in the Brady's yard. It's like, just so they just get they an electric s- fence, man. Just get an electric fence. Like, just, <laughs> I don't know, or get a fucking dog. Like, if they hate cats so much, nah, dude, get a bunch they, of dogs. 
They've got bear traps. That, that's that's how they resorted to. That's their production. Just, you know, bear traps. It's like the and, worst and possible such. thing. A fucking cat is so nimble. Like, a bear trap is the <laughs> worst possible method of trying to catch the goddamn cat. Like, I... I know. Like, okay, if there's... They jump away. If there's a fucking creature that can kill me by scratching me, I'm sure as hell gonna live in a place where it's as hard for them to get to me as possible. Whether that's fucking electric fence, a bunch of dogs. I mean, I don't know how dogs and sleepwalkers get together, but, uh, you know, if they can handle dogs, I'd have a bunch of fucking dogs in a yard. The cats ain't gonna fuck with that. I mean, I don't know. I would, or move to fucking Alaska. I don't know. Can't be too many Roman house cats in fucking freezing weather. <laughs> I just wouldn't be, like, sitting there with shitty bear traps the whole time. <laughs> true. Very true. Uh, yeah, the traps are all out, and Charles tells his mom it's starting again, remembering all the previous places that they've been, and they were supposed to leave. So they keep going to these towns, and what they're essentially doing is they're, tr they're Brian, Brian, Charles is finding a virgin, like the right virgin for him to essentially feast on, and, 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 and help for his mother, essentially, because she's hungry and she needs, she can only eat virgins. So, that's what he's doing. That's the whole game plan. That's why he's so fascinated with, uh, Majin Amix character. So, yeah, she's, uh, pretty pissed off about the whole ordeal. Mary, that's his mom's name. And she keeps telling him. She always reminds him, I'm starving, Charles. I'm starving. Uh, when is Charles going to bring her the nourishment she needs? Tomorrow, he promises. Tomorrow. You didn't get it. No. Why didn't you get anything? I just couldn't. What about the girl? Wasn't the right time. Tomorrow. I need it tomorrow. What are you talking about? Starving, Charles. I need you have to get it for me. So, how do we feel about the whole incestuous angle being played out here as the two... Well, just throughout the movie, not just the sex scene that occurs afterwards, but yeah, throughout dance. the entire movie. Yeah, uh... Well, the, the dance is at first. At first you think, oh, it's just a... It's just a loving father or a loving mother-son um, little dance together, but then... It gets sexual awfully quickly. <laughs> yeah, I I think for the movie, like, you know, there are these basically eternal, you know, like, long-living beings, so I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Like, they're kind of their own thing, so of course they're going to love each other. Uh, you know, right. it's still fucking weird, but, uh, you know, I think it fits into the story okay. Uh, what really uh, blew it for me is when they have the fucking mirror and they show like in the reflection they have like the weird old fucking cat people going at it like uh you know that's when it crosses over to uh are they trying to make me laugh like i don't i don't i mean i guess so because it's kind of funny <laughs> uh just imagine like the two actors rolling around each other on those suits but uh however brief it was but yeah it's i don't necessarily have a problem with it it's just another weird choice i don't know this whole movie like we'll get into it at the end but this whole movie like i really don't understand a lot of the choices i'm not complaining because it turns out pretty funny but i really 
Like you're starting out with a decent base story and then you're just tacking all this weird shit on top of it. But the incest to me is like the least of the weird shit in this movie. They 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 get it on and we see through the mirrors that they're in their creature forms and they they let off this purple light that we see illuminating from the outside window. <laughs> that effect is so fucking shitty looking. I'm like all the other effects in this movie and that is the best yeah. they came up with. MSP yeah. effects. This was weird. I actually found this from a couple sources, otherwise I wouldn't have posted it. Wouldn't have bothered with it. Would have just kept on going. But it's been rumored that during this scene here between Brian Krause and Alice Krieger, the actor said that he was getting an erection. And yeah, the actress didn't mind. So Mick Garris told him to quote unquote get it wet if she's into it. She was she was, apparently, and so they had sex during this scene. Garris confirmed that during an interview where he said, and another was the scene where the sleepwalkers are making love. No, they're not making love. They're actually fucking. So, how does it make you feel about watching this scene now, knowing that they're actually getting it on, supposedly? I don't even know if that's even, like, how that's even possible. Like, I get it. You're a guy. You get a naked woman around you. Yeah, naturally, blood's gonna flow. You're gonna get something. But I think that's where it stops and ends for me personally because a film set, in case some of you didn't know, is filled to the brim with people. People doing different jobs. Different different kinds of jobs all around. Many, many people all on set. Now, I know these scenes like this Typically, they, they call for a closed set, meaning it's pretty much just your your key actors, the director, and your DP, obviously, and maybe lighting. I don't know, uh, but it's limited, and that's it. No one else. Um, but this story here, uh, like I said, I didn't want to believe it at first, but then when I saw a few sources claiming the same thing, I was like, oh, this is new. I didn't know about this. So, yeah, um, and th- this was the other scene I mentioned earlier about Garrus, that he included himself in the script, and, and it wasn't, this was not part of Stephen King's script, this scene here with the creatures having sex and the, and the purple light flashing outside. That does not happen in Stephen King's screenplay. So, we see Tanya packing for the picnic, and, sneak, and she sneaks a bottle of wine for, uh, from her parents, Sneaky, sneaky, Tanya. Then we cut to the date, the day of at least. Tanya shows up unannounced to the house and meets Mary, who sweetens up to her and gives her a rose before the date. Same sort of rose that we saw the dead girl with in the beginning. So, Mick Garris cast Alice Krieg as Mary Brady after remembering her appearance in 1981's Ghost Story. I've never seen Ghost Story, but a lot of people especially people whose opinions I hold a high regard, have raved about it. Have you ever seen Ghost Story? And if so, where do you stand on it? Yeah, never seen it, but I've heard good things as well. I almost bought it one time, but just never did. Oh. Yeah, for some reason, I always got this and another 80s film called Ghost Town confused. Ghost Town, I'm familiar with. That's actually not a good movie, but it came on Cinemax a lot. It was like a late 80s horror movie about this guy who just ends up in this rural, just ghost town, literally, like, as the title says. 
and you know, it's like little cowboys and stuff, and the, the main monster villain, whatever you want to call him, is like this really weird looking like like gunslinger or something like that. I don't know. So yeah, ghost story. And this is it was actually a film that he had publicized when he worked as a publicist for Universal. Because like we said, there wasn't a job in Hollywood Mick Garris never had back in the day, okay? That man got around before he became a filmmaker. Um, and I don't mean that in a snarky way or in a negative way or at all. Like, the man busted his ass to get to where he is. So, I have nothing but respect for that guy. Meanwhile, Charles' car is turned back to its original color. Just as Andy and Clovis drive by. Um, oh wait. I fucking skipped the whole entire scene. Let's back up the train a little bit. Boop, 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 boop. So, the cemetery date. Uh, as Charles makes grave rubbings, Tanya takes photos of both the graves and of Charles. And, yeah, everything's hunkadory until they start kissing. And Charles literally starts to suck the life out of Tanya. Um, it, yeah, Ta- it's all... It feels very abrupt, doesn't it? Like, am I the only one that yes. thinks that? Like, okay, so they're getting ready to go to the picnic. The girl literally goes to his fucking house. Like, the sleepwalkers have her in the house. And they choo- then they choose to go on the date, and then immediately after, they're on the date for a little while. Then he starts acting crazy. I'm like, again, it's like one of those things, like, I feel like they really didn't think things out too well. You When they're writing this movie, <laughs> the screenplay for this movie, I'm just... Like if she's if they're if he's just going to attack her out of nowhere, why the fuck didn't he just do it in the house when they had her in the yeah, house? Yeah, because they were they were they were too busy adding incestuous sex scenes. That's all. No, um, th- I agree. I felt that maybe could have used an extra scene or two with these two before the mayhem begins. Because you're right, it happens a little fast, a little abrupt, if you will. Um, but not enough for me to like cause an uproar about it. I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying, like, it's 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 fine. I'm not... I, yeah, I, I would have liked to have had maybe another scene or two with these two, because I do like the chemistry that, that they give off. Yeah. No, I but, to. you know, it's... What, do you, what else do you... It's an 89-minute movie, for Christ's sake. I know. I just, like, don't have the scene where she shows up at the house then. Just have her go pick her I, up, and then you're problem right. solved. You're right. You're right. Yeah, you're right. So, yeah, she uh, hits him over the head with her camera, but... I couldn't breathe. The excitement you were talking about, Tanya. understand each other, Tanya. <laughs> See, this is just how we live, Tanya. <laughs> Tanya doesn't have to hurt. Don't you get it, Tanya? I need you. I need you to live. Good. Please don't kill me. <laughs> doesn't stay knocked out for long enough and when she tries it's broken my camera yeah <laughs> broken my camera when he tries to steal her breath again she skewers his eyeball with a corkscrew so <laughs> it's just, 
talk about sudden turns. I personally felt like this sudden comedic direction that Kraus suddenly takes. It's hilarious, (laughs) but it feels out of place. It is like, okay, see, okay, think of his character as a whole. So anytime you're writing or doing any kind of story work, you want to have what's called a character bible. So you want to have your character, you want to know your character inside and out and have them act in a certain way. Okay, so this kid is supposed to be like an internal sleepwalker. He's supposed to be very suave and, uh, you know, debonair to pick up women. And then now he's trying to suck the life out of her and essentially kill her. And how is he acting like a fucking 12 year old? I mean, like, he like gets stabbed <laughs> and he's like, oh, my mom's not going to like that. <laughs> like, what the fuck is this? Like, <laughs> that's where this movie really is just like so abrupt. Like, you know, to me, yeah, I agree. it could be down to the actor. It could be down to the writing. I don't know. Like, so, uh, you know, Brian Krause, like, he's good when he's like the teen type character but when he's supposed to be like the scary monster it's fucking laughable i mean it just it's like a kid with a fucking spirit makeup kid on laughing like my mom's not gonna like the stain in this shirt or cop kebab like just any of the lines he cop says, kebab cop kebab any of the lines he says it's just fucking laughable at no point is he scary or intimidating or anything like that when he turns into the monster it's just it's just childish. Like, it's, it's just like, it, it seems like something we would have made back then. Like, we would have made up one right. of our friends and like, all right, what's he going to say now? Uh, cop kebab. Like, what? <laughs> it's just, it, I don't know. It doesn't gel. Like, they, I, I don't know exactly why, but I think you need to have him a little bit more intimidating, a little bit more quiet, a little bit more scary. If you want it to actually be a real horror movie, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, like I said, it's like, it's just all, I don't know. And then his makeup design begins to take effect. And in this particular scene right here, this is where I start to drive comparisons to Jackie Earl Haley's makeup from Freddy Krueger 2010, the Elm Street remake. Because after that film came out, okay, I told people for years that the makeup effects for Freddy Krueger looks just like the effects um, for Sleepwalkers. Like, I always said, I had this, like, gag, a little joke to myself that, you know, Freddy Krueger in the remake was a Sleepwalker or something, you know, to that magnitude. Because they look alike. They really, He looks just like that, that fucking awful makeup from that remake. Do you think the makeup but, guy um, showed up? Do you think he showed up the first day of the Nightmare on Elm Street movie and they're like, oh, yeah, you're doing the makeup. And he's like, oh, shit, I forgot my stuff. All right, let me go root around the back lot here. Oh, a sleepwalker <laughs> makeup. That'll do it. That's funny. I doubt it because I know who uh, did the uh, makeup effects in this movie and it's not the same person. And the guy who did the makeup effects in this film is Mr. Tony Gardner, who uh, we're going to talk about in a little bit. But in the meanwhile, this is... um. Yeah, back to what I was talking about before. Charles' car turns back to its blue color just as Andy and Clovis drive by. And then when Andy gets out to uh, investigate, very awful convenient, Tanya comes out out of the uh, cemetery running for help with Charles in pursuit. And as Andy tries to calm her down, this is when Charles finds a pencil and just jams it right into Andy's ear, like into his head. And, uh, 
That's the cop kebab line. Cop kebab. Cop kebab. <laughs> Charles attempts once more to take away her breath, but Andy shoots him in the back. Not even flinching, he just turns around, Charles, and takes the gun from Andy and shoots him away with it. Two things. I didn't hear a warning I, shot, I, I don't believe you fired a warning shot, officer. And the other is he shoots him in the stomach from close range, okay? Fucking Dan Martin sh gets blasted back. You would have thought he got shot with a shotgun or something, the way he just takes this fucking hit. He's like, no! Fucking flying back. Like, dude, just just collapse. You don't have to fall back. There's no flying back. Like, it was. it's a simple gun that shot you in the stomach. It's not going to blow you off your fucking boots. Yeah. Or, or whatever. So, that's it. That's, that's it for uh, poor Andy. He's dead now, out of this film. Back to Tanya, just when it looks like Charles is going to win. Clovis leaves at him and begins biting Clovis. him. Which, Clovis! Which, by the way, we didn't mention this, but uh, do you know a lot of cops that have a cat in the car with them? Because I sure as hell don't. But uh, it is kind of funny. <laughs> it's like so many conveniences. Like, all right, the cop's going to have a cat. Cop's gonna drive by. The car's gonna magically turn back into the old car for some fucking reason. I don't know why, because it's not like it's not like he has to be near the car or something like that. Like the car stayed red for a while, so who the fuck knows why it turns from a Mustang back into a Trans Am? I don't know, but uh, you know, it seems like they're like the writers. I can just see him now, be like, "We're gonna make a cool movie with the mortal sleepwalker guys who suck the life out of a young girl, and you know, they're gonna go right. on a date." But how's a cop going to get there? And then you just hear a fucking stunned silence. Well, we'll see fuck. his car. You just, you just hear a fuck. Fuck. And then you see, we'll see, they'll see his car parked out. Well, why would the cop know his car? Well, we'll have a chase earlier. It's just <laughs> like, it just, it just seems like they tacked right. all this shit on to fix one fucking problem. And it just comes out to be a jumbled mess. Because this whole movie, it just feels fucking random. Like, other than a few scenes, it just like, okay, this is the teacher uh, fucking... Uh, scene where he rips the teacher's hand off like the goddamn uh, blackmail scene and then oh yeah now he's gonna be driving fast so this is the cop chase scene where we find out the cop has a cat for some reason and then he can turn his car into different mm. things all shapeshifters can change cars yet apparently and then this is gonna be the scene uh, you know where we have a cop kebab like I don't know it just feels so random like this movie doesn't feel like a real movie half the time. It feels like just a bunch of scenes with like the same characters. <laughs> That's the best way I can put it. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh shit. Um so back to Tanya. Just when it looks like Charles is gonna win, Clovis leaps out his head and begins to bite him. And she climbs into the squad car, locks all the doors, and frantically tries to get a message to the dispatcher. Who's played by Mick Garris' wife, Cynthia. Uh, she's the dispatcher here that we see throughout the film, that blonde. Charles manages to get the cat off his face and speeds away in his blue car. And the scene ends with Clovis meowing over Simpson's dead body. So both Mick Garris... I know. Both Mick Garris and Mage and Amick are both allergic to cats. Uh, they both said this in the commentary for the the Screen Factory disc, and Amick didn't reveal to anybody this fact until, of course, production went, you know, was underway. 
for obvious reasons. Fear of losing your job, perhaps, is the biggest one. But the director was also loaded with the cats, so I'm not sure how that shoot went down. But Charles comes home, and he's all fucked up. Like, this, my boy's seen so many better days in his lifetime than this. Like, ugh. Mary tends to him while he's on the couch, all bloody and weak. And she tries to get him to turn invisible to hide so when the cops inevitably show up. But he can't do it. So she says that she'll take care of she'll take care of him herself. And then we get what I consider to be the film's treat for genuine horror fans. Stephen King as the caretaker. He's just going around to various people at the crime scene to say he ain't taking the rap for this. Hey, buddy. Buddy, I ain't taking the rap on this. I lock this place up every night. It's not my fault if every pervert, weirdo, well, don't talk to horny... Me. Ki- Go talk to someone in charge. I'm busy. Buddy. Yeah? Listen. It's not my fault if every horny kid and weirdo pervert comes in here. I lock this place up. I don't need this action. Okay, don't talk to me. Talk to the sheriff. Sheriff, hey. Not now. We see uh, Toby Hooper and Clive Barker. He goes to them first. And then while Sheriff and uh, Horace are talking to Tanya, a forensics guy comes over and takes some pictures of her bruises. If you're a hard dork like us, then you would recognize this guy who takes the pictures. It's Stu Charno, the guy who played Ted in Friday the 13th Part 2. Who yeah, also makes an appearance in Christine. Yeah, it's pretty awesome, this shot. Like, uh, But any, I feel like any of the general public, like anybody who's not really into horror or movies, is not going to get it. Like, You're just going to be like, well, I mean, you might recognize Stephen King. I think a lot of people would recognize Stephen King, but yeah. uh, everybody else, I think, would be lost on them. And then on top of that, it's like this long track, like you're tracking with Stephen King, it's just an yep. odd shot because, like, you've never seen this character before, just from a story perspective. Not like I know what they're trying to do here, have it throw in an Easter egg. He's the caretaker. He's not supposed to be in the movie. I know, but it's just weird to have like this shot, like with this guy oh. caretaker we've never seen before, like going around, <laughs> like devoting all this time to saying he's not taking the rap. Like from a story perspective, it really doesn't need to be there. It really doesn't make any sense. But from the you know horror fan perspective, it's pretty cool seeing all these guys you know, on camera, but I'm just saying if you're just, like, the first time I watched this movie, I knew who Stephen King was, I didn't know who the fuck any of those other guys were. So, I was like, <laughs> what is this? Like, what am I watching right now? Yeah, I mean, I've always known what they look like from various documentaries and stuff. I will I say like this, six. though, Barker, but Barker doesn't look like, Barker looks completely, completely different back then than what he does now. Um, he's all like clean shaven. He's got short hair. Now I think it's all grown out. He's got a beard and shit. And shit. Like a little bit different, but still. And you're right, Corey. When I was eight years old, I didn't know who these people were. I didn't even know who Stephen King was. Maybe I did, but you know. But this scene's not for the GP. This scene's for people like us. You know, this is like a real treat for people like us who are into horror. And regardless of what you feel about the movie itself, you're always going to take this scene from it, you know? And then later on, 
we'll we'll get cameos from John Landis and Joe Dante. They show up as a couple of lab workers who are talking to uh, the sheriff and the dispatcher. So, you know, this thing's chock full of just many. Just, this this movie's chock full of like horror. Who's who in horror? You know. So the uh, sheriff and his men arrive at the Brady house and they bust in just as Mary gets her and Charles to disappear together. And this is the first scene with Ron Perlman as the captain. <laughs> He's like, what? Cold draft? You could use a cold one? <laughs> the sheriff, know, that, that line's so funny. Sheriff's like, it's a cold draft. He's like, what? Cold draft? You could use a cold one? So he seemingly takes an hatred, like this instant hatred to Tanya and her story. And he tells the sheriff that she's in, what she's in need of is a good spanking. And he's going to be the one to do it. Okay. You do that, Ron Perlman. Now, this is not the first time we've seen Ron Perlman. Oh, this is going to be the first, the only time we'll see him in both a Stephen King adaptation as well as a Mick Garris film. Both. He's in Desperation 14 years later, which is both a Stephen King adaptation and Mick Garris film. So, didn't see it. Can't really comment on it. I just know he's in it. Uh, Horace the bumbling deputy who we've been talking about by name, but never really, haven't really talked about Horace, who he is. Horace is just, like I said, a bumbling deputy who just, the, the way he fires his gun off and everything, like he's just <laughs> bumbling. Yeah, he's That's like the only word I got for him. Fucking Don Knotts or something like that, like a Barney yeah. fight. Like he just, yeah, it doesn't, not a real cop. Yeah, before I get ahead of myself, though, we see him at the the dinner table, scarfing down the last of the uh, the the Robertson's dinner, and Tanya's up in the bath bathtub taking a bath, and she has this jump scare with Charles suddenly appearing. Can we talk about how Tanya's parents are played by Ferris Bueller's parents, Cindy Pickett and Lyman Ward? Yeah, I the, <laughs> did you notice that? Yeah, I noticed that. I was like it. Well, okay, so I was watching it, and at first I'm like, God, what are they in? Like, I know they played the parents and other stuff, and I didn't realize they literally played the parents of Ferris Bueller. I thought they had yeah. both been in, like, different movies or TV shows, and I'm like, this has to be on purpose, right? Like, they're like, I want <laughs> Ferris Bueller's parents for this movie. You can't have one without the other. Uh, no, actually, funny story, they were married at this time. <laughs> I do believe they're, they've been... I, I think they recently divorced. Um, but yeah, they were married. Well, yeah, they divorced. Oh, no. I'm sorry. They divorced in 92. Not recently. <laughs> they were divorced when this movie came out, probably. They divorced when this movie came out. This movie probably fucking divorced them. They're probably like, ugh. So can't last, do it with you anymore. I'm sorry. This is our last role as parents. This is it. <laughs> um... Yeah, uh, Lyman Ward, who plays the father. Why don't you tell me the other horror movie from 1992 that he made an appearance in? Do you know? God, yeah, I I knew I recognized him from something else. I'm uh, have, I'm drawing a blank on the what else he was in, but yeah. I, I'll give you a real quick hint. We made a reference to another film that the that the, the titular character stars in, directed by Rupert Wainworth. Blank check. Brian Bos, uh, Brian Bonsall plays the boy in Blank Check, plays the boy in Mikey from 1992. Yeah, Richard, uh, Richard, 
Yeah, uh, Lyman Ward plays the uh, the gym teacher in that movie. There's a lot of that. That's another movie that has a lot of who's who in horror. Ashley Lawrence is in it. Um, Lyman Ward, John Deal, who we talked about briefly uh, last month in our Con Air episode. He plays. Uh, he was uh, Nicholas Cage's lawyer. Uh, oh, yeah, holy Mike, shit. Mikey. No, I just thought of what I thought I'm from. He plays fucking Grady's dad. And fucking Nightmare on Elm Street 2, that's what I'm thinking of. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Elm Street 2, baby. That's what I'm thinking of. The horror movie I'm thinking of. Yeah. And and he's also in my favorite movie of all time, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. You'll never, You'll never make, make the six. <laughs> yeah. You'll never make the six. But yeah, Lyman Ward, dude. And then I remember a year later, he was in the Beverly Hillbillies movie. I don't know why I'm mentioning that. I just remember him being in the film. So, um, yeah. They they were together in, in in real life at this time, not much longer after this, but yeah, they were still together. Outside, Mary arrives and she pops up behind these two cops that are looking around. And he's like, <laughs> "I heard something." She's like, "Nah, he's like, yeah, that was the fucking wind. It wasn't the fucking wind." She pops up, kills them by knocking their heads together, and she goes, fucking "You're right. Stooges. That was not the fucking wind." <laughs> Yeah, I love hearing her say that, but yeah, she fucking, like, three stooges them to death. Like, I mean, they just get knocked in, like, ah, eh, knuckleheads, knack, knack, and then they're <laughs> fucking dead. Knock, 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 knock. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. So, Mary raises all hell at the house. She knocks on the door. Oh, no, she rings the doorbell. Uh, Mr. Robertson opens the door, Lyman Ward. And she is there to apologize for her son, Charles. And she has a glass vase with her full of roses that she proceeds to bust over his head. And then she, like, well, she does that. And then he flats right. He, she, she hits him over the head and breaks it over his face because you get, like, the effect with, like, his face is all bloodied up and he's got a couple of shards of glass sticking out. And then he just kind of, like, stumbles backwards and, like, collapses over the coffee table. Hi, I'm Mary Brady, Charles's mother. Charles couldn't come himself. Donald, who is it? I'll take care of it, Helen. Just stay in the kitchen. Mrs. Brady. But I know he wanted you to have these flowers. (laughs) Like, he just... Uh, points out the coffee table, walks towards it, and just collapses over top of it. Um, and then he, th- she throws Mrs. Robertson out the window before turning her attention to Horace, who is making this ugly, like, shit face while he's trying to shoot his gun at her, but he's he's hitting, like, everything around her but her, and he's, like, only ten feet away from her. So, yeah. it's a terrible shot. It's like some Dumb and Dumber Worst type shot shit. Ever. You're a terrible shot. Um, yeah, he goes to the kitchen to call for backup, and while he's doing so, she stabs him in the back with a corn on the cob. We have a death by corn on the cob in this movie. Yeah, death by that corn. Right there, that, that right there makes it an all-timer. I don't I mean, care. Listen, I mean, listen to the fucking uh, murderer's row of weapons here. I mean, you have a gun, <laughs> pretty standard, then you have a fucking pencil. Then a corn on the cob. Like, do you think, like, Stephen King was just sitting around? He's like, what can they kill each other with? Ah, corn <laughs> on the cob. Ah, fucking pencil. Oh, Three Stooges is on the TV. Let's throw that in there, too. 
what else can we do today? Like what? It's like the Family Guy thing, or Stephen King, like the the parody where like you know Stephen King's pitching his next movie and he's like, oh, spooky lamp, ooh, like that's what I fucking think of with this shit, like all the random shit they're killing people with. Oh, a spooky lamp, ooh. So yeah, death by corn on the cob, and then we see. Um, oh, real quick, this is where I want to have the conversation for Tony Gardner, because why not? He did all the uh, effects in this film. He also designed the creature suits that we see. Now, the creature suits, they weren't completely... They weren't the actual suit he wanted. The suit that he had planned to work with dealt with, like, um, uh, like uh, legs that bend in three places, like an actual cat and shit, or, or an actual animal that, that walks around on all fours. Um, but because of the budget they could only take what they could get and that's this suit that he made that actually had to these suits that the people that that the masks or whatever that they that these performers wore like it would get so heated that they actually had like ac actually had like acs like installed in these suits to keep them you know at bay without you know dehydrating or or overheating themselves or whatever um and that's why they're all bulky. Like these suits that they wear are huge. They're fucking bulky as all hell. And that's pretty much why. Um, funny enough, the suits that he was trying to make with the the, the legs that bend in three uh, wouldn't happen. It would happen. It would come to fruition later on uh, for the next film that Garris did, Tommy Knockers, Stephen King's The Tommy Knockers, which I'm not familiar with. Never seen it. Never read the book. Never not familiar with the either. book. So, I guess it also deals with cat people. Um, we see all the cats in town heading in the same direction together. This big herd of cats just cutting through town. Evil Um, dies tonight! The cats are fucking (laughs) uniting! (laughs) That's great. So, um, yeah, they they come to the Robertson residence. Oh, that's where they're heading. Oh, no, they're heading to, um, somewhere. But we, as the audience, cut back to the Robertsons, where Mary has gotten a hold of Tanya, and Ron Perlman tries to stand in the way. She fucking bites his fingers off and and, and knocks him in the fucking head with a broken arm, and then she takes (laughs) his gun, and she's got... So imagine this shot. She's got Tanya over her fucking left or right shoulder. Then the other hand, she's got this gun extended, and she's just firing a couple shots, maybe two or three, causing this massive explosion. Like, this is Hollywood 101 right here. Boom. One thing I took from this scene is the neighborhood. I have an eye for shit. I don't know what it is, but this this, this is the same street that was in Fright Night, Wes Craven's Deadly Friend, The Burbs takes place in this fucking court on this street. It's just a popular street. It's on, I believe, the Warner Brothers back lot in, in Burbank, I think is where it is. Um, so, yeah, that, that obviously everything else was filmed on a set in Carolina. I think it was Carolina. Maybe I'm wrong with my cities because I know Scream Gems have a studio in Carolina. But maybe they filmed this in, in Burbank or Los Angeles. Same difference. Because, uh, you know, Hook and Dracula are pretty big productions. I can't imagine them being 
anyway, back to the film at bay here. So, you've heard the phrase hurting cats. Well, that abstract concept came literally when a total of 126 cats were used in the production of this film to get them to run as a, like a herd down the set street. The cats weren't fed breakfast and came running when they finally were fed in the afternoon. According to Mick Garris, the easiest feline to work with was named Sparks, who was a trained Hollywood cat and was considered to be the Robert De Niro of cat actors. Don't think that was uh, Clovis, but anyway, I digress. When we get back to the house, Mary finds the entire place in the yard just crawling with cats. Millions and billions and trillions of cats, including Clovis. And while Mary's forcing Tanya to dance with her defeated son Charles, who's near death himself, the police sneak up on the home, and when Charles tries to feed on Tanya's breath, she puts him out of his misery by poking out both of his eyes with her fingers and kills him. My beautiful Charles, mommy's home. He's dead. Look at him, he's dead. No! He's not dead. He's sleeping. Can't you see he's sleeping? You know what I bet he'd love to do? You like to Right, you can see for yourself. What? Dance with him. Dance with, with Charles. Dance with my son. <laughs> so the sheriff brought him and saves Tanya, gets her out of the house. As all the cats are attacking Mary and burning her up, she's starting to smoke. Starting to take effect a little <laughs> she bit. It starts to smoke. Oh god! It's like, okay, so anytime the cats are attacking, it's hilarious. You run into this problem anytime. Like, I mean, it's just funny. Like watching someone with a fucking fake cat, and they're like, ah, like wiggling <laughs> around. It's just hilarious. Right. And then right. she's smoking. Oh god, this this movie doesn't disappoint at the end either. Nah, nah, not at all, dude. So, yeah, fucking, she's all smoking and burning up, and she turns into full creature form as the sheriff and Tanya escape, and she kills the sheriff. She throws him back into the yard while she goes to attack Tanya, but then the sheriff takes one of them fucking bear traps and just lunges it at, um, um, 
Mary in cat form. But she turns around, picks him up, and just impales him with the fucking wooden picket fence. I love it. Death by picket fence. So rest in peace, Sheriff. Exit stage left. And eventually the cats continue to attack her. Sets her own, setting her on fire in the process. Back to Tanya. She's in the sheriff's car and she's backing out as Mary like, just leaps onto the windshield, burning up, saying uh, that she killed her only son. And then she collapses. Clovis appears and Tanya tells the cat, It's just you and me now. As the screen fades to black on Mary's burning corpse, various cats walking <laughs> around the flames. It's just an aftershot. The film ends with this fucking fade to black on an after, aftermath shot of just like fire and cats and, and creatures and cats are like we yeah. in the city now. <laughs> in uh, it, back in uh, 2020 on the postmortem podcast, one of the ask me anything question or episodes that they do every other week, Garris confirmed that there was discussion from Columbia about a sequel, saying in full. There was a little bit of talk. I mean, the movie was successful. It was the number one movie the week it came out. I never heard the studio talk about it, but Tabitha King, who's Stephen King's wife, actually wrote a treatment for the sequel that involved the women's basketball team somehow. Not exactly sure how. I never read it, but King was very excited that Tabby came up with this. But it was a sequel that nobody at the studio gave a shit about. You know, they liked the money that Sleepwalkers made, but it was not a prestige release by any means, so they never even thought about Sleepwalkers after. Both Garris and Russo, Joe Russo, who's a producer on the podcast, um, they discussed a potential reboot with Garris expressing surprise that there was seemingly no interest, with Russo admitting that we had a very flirtatious conversation with a production company about a year ago, maybe. It was nothing more than flirting. So before we close the book on the actual film itself, I just have one question for you, Corey. Do you think this film deserves, or this, do you think this film warrants either a sequel or a remake? And if so, why? Uh, honestly, I don't want to see him do anything. Here's what I'm afraid is going to happen, and it happens okay. with these type of movies a lot. They do a sequel, of course, and they're going to try to make it over the top and funny and just ludicrous like this one. And I'm not saying it can't be done, but for my money, most of the time when someone's trying to make that type of movie, 
like a sequel mm-hmm. to a bad movie and they're trying to purposely make it uh, crazy and bad shit and over the top. It doesn't work. Like a lot of these movies work because they were made in earnest and it just didn't turn out quite as they expect. Like that's how the movies work. You know, like, you know, there, there's a ton of them out there, but movies like the room, you can't go in. And I'm not saying that this movie's anywhere close to like the room, but I'm just saying you can't make a movie uh, like and try to purposely make it awesomely bad. Like it, it, it has to be done in my opinion by accident most of the time. Like you have to be making it, and then it turns into something else. When you come mm-hmm. in with the mindset of we're gonna make Sleepwalkers too, we're gonna have all this crazy cat shit and all these crazy kills and silly acting. If you try to do that from the beginning, it's just gonna feel forced. Uh, that's just my opinion. I mean, maybe a remake, maybe if they wanted to do like a more serious take on it, maybe like a more Mm -hmm. gothic, dramatic take, that might not be bad. I might enjoy that on a different level. But if they try to just do a direct sequel and have all this batshit crazy stuff and go completely over the top, I don't, I personally don't think it would turn out well. But I mean, I could be wrong. You never know. They could pull it off. Uh, what do you think about it? Um... You know, it, I, I, I don't. I, I, I'm fine with the way it is personally. I, I don't. I, I don't have too much to comment on it. Honestly, you kind of catch caught me at a you know at a loss for words. So, um, but yeah, that's Stephen King's Sleepwalkers, from director Mick Garris. And about now is the point of the episode where we turn to the box office portion and talk box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250,000 American dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want receipts. All right, Sleepwalkers was released on April 10th, 1992 from Columbia Pictures. It opened up wide. 1,864 screens. That's a lot for 92. Opening weekend, $10 million first place. Second weekend, $5.1 million fourth place. A drop off of 48.2%. Total gross, $30.5 million on a budget of $15 million. So, movie, universally, um, for, for, for all the, the, the critics that it has, we'll get to it momentarily, um, in the end, it just seemed to recuperate its budget back, and that's pretty much it. Um, not exactly a home run for Columbia by any means, so that's probably why um there was no sequel um involved. It's not, it's not a home run, but it's not a flop. I mean, it made money. Like when you factor but, in, like down the road with the uh video sales and TV rights, yeah. I mean, it made money. It's not. Not a flop. But they want to. But companies want to make their monies during that initial run. You know, they don't want to wait down the road decades or so with um with with making that money. They want no, they know. want receipts then and there. That's that's how they look at it. And so that's kind of how I've adapted my my mindset. And that's how I kind of look at it too. But um, but yeah, that's you know, and that's another reason why I just got kind of like caught up with myself when you turned the question to me, because I've never really thought about it honestly, and the the, the idea of a sequel, maybe it could work. I don't know why we would have a sequel unless there's 
more of these two because this this movie leads us to believe that it's just Mary and Charles that they're the last of their kind, and so with them gone, what do we do? You know, a remake? Sure, you can do a remake. Probably be something made for probably half the budget Mick Mick got for this film. Not even what's that budget? Fifteen million dollars and shit. You could probably take that down to about a, a, a hefty two million if it got if it ever got greenlit today. And honestly, it's fine the way it is. This is just it's a harmless movie. I like to come back to from time to time that opened up thirty years ago. Nothing more, nothing less. It was never meant to be, you know, a franchise film or anything yeah. like that. I agree. So yeah. that's that's mainly why. So. No, I agree with you. Like, because, like I said, I, I feel like it would be forced if they tried to go over the top. And also, I don't, right. I don't need more backstory on the Sleepwalkers. I like the fact that it's just this weird fucking thing that I don't know much about. Like, I, you know, right. anytime horror movies go into too much backstory, it usually just makes my brain seep out of my ear. So, uh, you know, I'm okay with uh, the way it is too. All right. Well. Now that everyone's heard what we thought about the movie, let's hear what everyone else thought and head over to the Critics' Corner. Alright, so Sleepwalkers has a 33% Rotten Tomato score. Based off of 18 reviews. It's got a meta score of 38 out of 100. Based on 12 reviews. And a cinema score of C+. Variety called it an idiotic horror pot boiler. And overall. Universal panned. You know I mean? I'm sorry. It was universally panned. Although it's developed its fair share of fans over the years. Myself included. Um, as I had mentioned before. But yeah. Um. Typical horror film that critics just tear apart. And I'm not going to lie, Corey, I got tired of reading all the shitty reviews and want to be critics thinking they're clever with their words and their cat puns. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. They're not even going to get acknowledged on the podcast. Universally, you got panned. That's all you need to know. Yeah, yeah, I can hear it now. This movie's a catastrophe. <laughs> like, yeah, I can hear the fucking reviews now. Jesus. I'm already cringing. Uh, so, yeah. All right, let's talk about more what we thought and do pros and cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. Pros. Really impressive effects for its time. You know, we talked about it before. You gotta remember, it's 30 years ago. Everything worked for me except for that glowing purple shot. Um, and yeah, another pro. I'm really into mixed tongue and cheek approach he does with this film. It's got it's a it's a horror movie first and foremost, but he's got that just comedic nudge throughout, sprinkled throughout. You know that that I've always appreciated. Hey, it's a film that's chock full of fun cameos. That's another pro. And my final pro is. Short and sweet runtime. A real in and out kind of movie. My kind of movies. My favorites. How about you, Corey? What are your pros for it? 
Yeah, my top one definitely has to be the uh, makeups and special effects. I mean, a lot of it still holds up. Like, you know, am I going to say, like, the actual makeup effect on the Sleepwalkers is great? No, but, I mean, it's makeup. It's really on the actor. It looks cool enough. They they look unique. But, like, the transformation stuff, uh, yeah, all of it looks good for early 90s. I mean, it's really easy to go back and watch a movie from this time period and just put your head down into your lap and just like, oh my God, look at this shit. But uh, yeah, this movie holds up fairly well. Uh, like you said, other than the glowing scene, it looked like it's from After Effects. That's about it. Uh, my next pro is I like the chemistry between the leads. Um, you know, I, I think they're believable in a teen love story. I think, yeah, it's likable. I think Brian Krause is charming uh, in his role. I totally believe that he could be the guy who lures all the pretty girls into a relationship. Now, do I yes. buy him as anything else? Nah. But, uh, you know, I, I like the relationship. I wish it had a little bit more of that, but I like the uh, the chemistry between the two leads. I think that's uh, definitely one of the strong suits in the film. Um, and then my last pro is... It's just, a like you said, just a short, fun movie. I appreciate any movie that gets... You know, it's around a 90 minute runtime. There's so many films, like especially some horror movies. I'm like, why is this two hours long? I'm like, does this movie really need to be two hours long in a lot? Everything times? we've covered so far on the horror has been like a 90 minute movie and or less. Yeah, I looking at you, bad moon. I just miss those days. And this movie is no exception. You can just sit down in one sitting. You don't have to get up to go to the bathroom. You don't have to. Make a day of it. You can just sit down, take a little time off, watch it, enjoy it, and move on with your day. And that's why I like this film. It's just a breeze to sit through. And then, um, you know, one last part I want to throw in there is I really like um, Alice Critch in this, um, you know, as the mom, Mary Brady. I think she's great. Uh, I think she's great in Star Trek. I liked her in the Gretel and Hansel movie. And I think she's got, I don't know. She's just got something about her. She just feels like off and otherworldly almost in this uh, movie. And I, I liked her and I like the, even though it's incestuous, obviously, but I think it works. They definitely had chemistry between her and Krauss. So I wanted to throw that last pro in there. I totally buy that. They were like eternal beings together for a long time and they love each other. Like some of the re relationships in this film work. It's just some of the other stuff that doesn't, <laughs> you know, that we'll get into later. But those are my pros. All right, cons. If you're not into horror, this is definitely going to be a complete miss for you. Um, the incest plot line's a bit much. A little heavy on that. A little bit too heavy for my comfort. Sometimes the film depends on comedic elements, which not not a total con, but, you know, if you're looking for a straight-up horror movie, this might not be your cup of tea. And the people themselves, the characters, they are really fucking dumb. <laughs> That's all. Those are my those are my big cons for the movie that I laid out. How about you? Yeah, mine are pretty similar. I mean, the whole plot to the movie, like the base story, isn't bad, but just the whole plot structure, like it's all built on just randomness and conveniences. Like I don't True. know, like. Like the teacher pull a blackmail and pulling him over, random. The cop chasing him just feels random. The cop finding him because his car change, um, Grady's car changes it's all, later. It's awfully convenient that these things happen when they do. You know, yeah, it's just it, it, it's a it's a question of coincidence or just convenience. 
yeah, it just it doesn't feel like there's a story going forward for uh, the whole middle of the movie. It feels like the beginning. There's a story. The middle shit just happens for some reason. And at the end, you get the end of the story. Like, that's pretty much what it seems like to me uh, watching this. So it doesn't flow very well. Uh, My next con is while I praised like some of the relationships in the movie and some of the acting, a lot of the other acting is terrible. So like Brian Krause, like I said, you know, very good is like the teen heartthrob type. Terrible is like a villain. I mean, just horrible. Like, uh, was I ever intimidated, scared, worried, any of that? No, it was just hilarious. I mean, it just seems like your older brother dressed up in makeup and is like <laughs> having fun with you. Like, ha ha ha, cop kebab. Like, it's just, it's just <laughs> not scary whatsoever. And it just completely is just like jarring while you're watching it. Like this. Yeah, the serious opening with like all the cat stuff, and then right. half an hour later, you're watching stab a cop with a pencil. I mean, it's just the completely ridiculous. So, yeah, it's very jarring uh, there. So, yeah, sorry, Mr. Krause. Like, you're at home on that show Charmed because I know he was on there. Like, perfect. That's fit the there. show he's from. There yeah, it is. Perfect fit right there. Uh, as right. for the Stephen King horror villain, eh, not so much. So, yeah, that that part didn't work for me. I I, at no point uh, did that part of the performance work where he's supposed to be like the scary monster. Uh, Yeah, it's just ridiculous, but still funny and entertaining in a different way. But uh, if you're going for a horror movie, it doesn't work. My next con is movie. It's just not scary. Like, I know it's a horror movie. I'm not saying all horror movies have to be like, you know, a certain way or another. And I know this has some tongue-in-cheek stuff, but the movie doesn't really work for me as a horror movie. It works for me as just this batshit weird movie. So, but uh, you have to throw it out there. Like, it, it, I don't think it, it it succeeds in the way they initially thought. It, it's succeeding right. in a different way, but um, I still have to put that con out there. And then my last one, like you said, the characters are just all fucking, like, as dumb as a bag of fucking rocks. I mean, just... All of them are just stupid. I mean, it's just, yeah, it, it, it's pretty ridiculous. And then um, it might seem like I have a lot of cons. My very last con, and it's not unique to this film, but I have an issue where any type of monster or villain that's defeated by such an easy, inane object. So, uh, you know, for example, one that pops into my head is signs. Um, you know, the fact that aliens <laughs> don't like water and they landed on a planet that's mainly right. made of water. This film, I mean, there are these eternal beans. How do you take them out? A fucking house cat. It's just a problem with that. It just, it kind of makes your villain not scary when I know all I got to do is get my fucking cat Bojangles and throw it on him and he's gone, you know? It's just, that's an issue with not just this movie, but any movie that does that to me. Right. Just doesn't work. I don't know. I just, I don't know why they do it like that, but why writers pick that kind of shit, but it just doesn't work for them. That's my last con. What'd you think of Machen? Huh? Machen Amick. What, what, what did you think about Machen oh, Amick? I, I guess I didn't really bring her up. She was okay. She was very cute, likable. Uh, I think she was a decent, um, as a lead protagonist. I liked her. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I think she's, uh, outside of looks, I think she definitely has that charm and it factor. Yeah, she's very like final girl. Yeah. Right. 
She was very likable. I wanted to see her survive. I, you know, like I, I was on board with that. I guess I didn't bring her up because I didn't think it was anything like super great. Like I didn't necessarily I, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to call her out. She's fantastic. But yeah, she's good. She's good in the movie. I thought I thought it was because you couldn't pronounce her name. <laughs> and that could be it, too. But honestly, I, I kind of see her as middle of the road. Like it, it works like she's likable, right. but it's nothing like I would say, yeah, watch that Sleepwalkers. That Mason Amick is great. You know, she's she's good. She's likable. She's she's really good in this movie, and she's yeah. so beautiful. God, she's beautiful. Uh, even today, she's beautiful because she's on that uh, Riverdale show, so she's still active in the uh, industry to this day. All right, we can move on then to finger licking good. Finger licking good. For me, it's Otho's death in the whole cemetery sequence. I know it's like. They're not really the same scene. They're, they're together almost. They're like kind of like not far apart. It's kind of like that that middle mess of the movie we we're talking about. Um, but for some reason, I've always you know felt that this was the best part of the film for as out there as it is. Because you know you got you have your creature effects on full display here at this point. Not to mention you know Krauss's humor. For whatever it is, or for whatever it's worth, it still gives me a, a laugh or two. Um, and and yeah, it's I don't know. I just keep on coming back to this scene. It, you know, his his true colors are revealed to uh, to Tanya and everything. And I don't know. There's something about this scene that that I've just always liked. It could be the fact that this is it's it's the scene that I always think about like my head automatically goes to you know Otho getting his hand cut off and him gnawing down on him from that overlook shot or something or or maybe it's him laughing with the quasi makeup effects on his face as he's taunting Tanya before going in for the for the for the kill or whatever but yeah for me it's always been that cemetery sequence you know I know it's not the strongest part of the film but it's it's been my favorite just because it's, I don't know. My mind's trained to think of that scene at first. So I always go to that scene first and foremost. And maybe that's why I made it my finger looking good moment. So how about you? Absolutely. The whole middle part of the movie. I mean, I don't know if you can call it the second act because it's just a big mess of jumbledness, but you can for, for, for conversation purposes, we can consider it the second act for sure. Yeah. So the first act of the film is fine. It sets everything up. Everything's good. The third act has some crazy shit, but it's, you know, some of it's over the top, but I would, I wouldn't say a lot of it's out and out hilarious. I mean, some of it is, but you know, the third act ends it. This middle part though, it just, you could tell this is just where everybody was having fun. And it just shows like I, you know, one of the funniest lines ever is just, I agree. We should keep our hands to ourselves. Here's yours. Like, I mean, who, how do you not love that lie? Like, it just, it's just a smile on my face every time. And then I just start laughing. I just love the interaction between um, the officer and Clovis, the cat. Like, I, I just Andy and the cat is just great. Like, I just love seeing them, too. Just all the random shit he says, like he's singing to himself as they're driving. Like, that's entertaining, too. But yeah, how, how do you not love the whole bill sequence? I mean, it's just genuinely just intriguing and making me laugh i like the cop kebab like i, I a, a paid writer got cop paid kebab. 
a, a professional adult writer got paid to write that cop kebab. Like, I just like to let that. Yeah, Stephen people. King. Yeah, like <laughs> I mean, oh, I didn't know if Stephen King wrote it or was the screenplay, but uh, you know, people got paid to write that cop kebab. <laughs> just oh my god. And then, yeah, the corn cob, uh, it's just all of it. It just all blends together, and it's just so hilarious and awesome. Like I said, if you're a fan of, like, the awesomely bad, I mean, I love the movie Troll 2 also. I mean, obviously, Troll 2 <laughs> is a far, far shittier film than this one. But right. just any ridiculousness like that, I'm a fan of, and I'm here for this whole middle sequence of the movie. I mean, hell, like we said, it's only 90 minutes, so you're talking the middle sequence it isn't that long but it's just so much packed into there. there's just so much denseness like when he's transforming the car and it's not enough to have an invisible car on the side of the road with a shapeshifter inside then you gotta have him talking to a fucking house cat like stop looking at me cat like i mean it's just <laughs> stop <laughs> um, looking at me swan yeah it's just hilarious <laughs> like i i this movie is so entertaining honestly i i think any horror fan who just can not take himself too seriously and get a good laugh. I think you would enjoy it. So yeah, for sure. Finger looking good. The whole ridiculousness of the second act. All right. Well, that's the good. Let's talk about the bad a little bit and bring up our mulligan moments. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? I'd completely ax the horse character and make the finale bigger. It feels like the film wraps up just as things get going, featuring a bunch of underwhelming elements. And, um, yeah, just, I just feel like the finale could have been spruced up. Fucking axe that goddamn Horus character. For as bumbling as he is, he's just, I don't know, it doesn't fit into this movie. Uh, at least that's how I feel. But, um, yeah, I just feel like the film, because, like, you know, we're just, we just talked about it here. You know, how both of our favorite parts are the second act. Well, it's a horror movie. Why is not why isn't the third act on that list? Well, it's because it's not big enough, to be honest with you. And that's why, you know, if I had the ability to change one thing about this movie, just one, I'd spruce that ending up. How? I don't know. I'm not I am not asking for, for details. I'm just saying this I I'd make it bigger. So Yeah, I mean you know, mine would be the same way. I th I think the movie and, you know, I'll point to this. My mulligan mode would be don't have, you know, Brian Krause get attacked by the cat right there and be like near death the rest of the movie. Like that that's kind of a bummer. I wanted to see more of his crazy shit at the end of the movie. Not so much uh, the mom, you know, like not Mrs. Gray. I, I, you know, I, I think that was kind of a misstep. I know like they had Clovis there. They wanted I guess they wanted to have Clovis get his revenge for his owner getting killed. But, uh, you know, I kind of I wanted more of the Charles Brady like craziness and you don't get that because he's all fucked up at the <laughs> end. You know, so I, I think that's a big missed opportunity. You know, I, I guess it gives um, you know, Mrs. Brady a try. Like, you know, I, I guess like she gets more screen time, which is cool, but. I kind of want to see both of them like in full force, just fucking people up. Three yeah. stooges in the hell out of both of everybody, <laughs> you know, it's just, I, I'm kind of disappointed yeah. in that. Like that would be my thing to change. Like don't have him get attacked by the cat just there, you know, kind of have it down the road. Cause it, to me, it, like you said, it kind of prematurely ends is kind of like reign of terror. And I was kind of disappointed by that. 
Yeah, I never really thought about that because, like, you know, we we lose Charles the second act for the most part, you know, except for the yeah. dying dance he does in the third. Because the third act really yeah. could have used both of them, I feel, together, making making the threat overall much bigger. You know, exactly because it's you're because all you're doing at this point is you're substituting one for the other. So right, that's uh, you make a good point with that, Corey. I'm glad you brought that up. All right, was that it? Yeah, that was mine. Just I, I wish he didn't get attacked right then. Yep. All right, let's move on then. To we skipped one. Let's do modern cancellations. Someone just got canceled. Someone just got canceled. Someone just got canceled. I wonder what they did. I totally skipped over that for some reason. Corey, who gets canceled by today's cancel culture? Uh, I think Mr. Fallows, a.k.a. Professor Otho, uh, easily gets canceled. I mean, you know, he can't be uh, blackmailing kids, especially traffic stops. I mean, he could get uh, arrested for impersonating an officer right there, too. So... But yeah, I, I definitely think uh, he gets canceled. He, you know, the funny part is he wouldn't get canceled if he just came out of the closet and admitted who he was and was cool with it. You know, don't be a closeted, angry douchebag and try to blackmail kids into doing shit for you. You know, but yeah, I definitely think yeah. uh, uh, Professor Otho gets canceled. Great minds think alike. I had Mr. Fallows as my answer as well. And so everything you just said goes double for me. That... Being said, we can move on. Like this, try that. Uh, Psycho 4, the beginning. Make it a Mick Garris double feature with films centering on a mother-son relationship, if you will. Um, not to mention they're both Mick Garris movies, and I like Mick Garris as a filmmaker, so... Had to sneak that in there. It makes sense, you know, that the, the, the mother-son subject is strong with both these films. Hell, you can you can really make my answer any Psycho movie as long as you keep that mother-son dynamic. That's what I'm going for with this answer. Uh, but because of the fact that Mick Garris did the fourth film and it centers on, like, how that relationship became what it is, um, that's my answer. Psycho 4. Yeah, my answer is another Stephen King adaptation uh, from around this time, and it's just awesomely bad, and that is Maximum Overdrive. Maximum Overdrive, right. <laughs> There's only one film I can uh. think of to watch with uh, Sleepwalkers, and that's Maximum Overdrive. I mean, if you want to see Emilio working at a gas station, feeling up homicidal fucking 18-wheelers, that is the movie for you. If you want to see Lisa Simpson fucking screaming half the time. That's the film for you. I, I love Maximum Overdrive. I love when the guy gets ran over at the beginning by the lawnmower. It's just like the same type of schlock in that movie is in uh, Sleepwalkers. And I think if you're looking for a double feature of movies that in no way will scare you, uh, but they're horror movies and they will entertain you in a different way, I think they go good together. So, yeah, I love Maximum Overdrive. Uh, I mean, who doesn't remember the fucking truck with the big fucking green goblin face on the front of it? And they blow it up at the end, and then the fucking iconic. Yeah, then the, you find out later through text that the space lasers fucking took care of everything, and now everybody's good again. And Emilio can go back to coaching the Mighty Ducks. Uh, all right, well, we can move on then to new VMVPs, 
Movie MVPs. Let's move on. All right. Now, you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is... To our MVPs. And with that, I'm going to say Clovis the Cat. Clovis the Cat is the MVP of this movie. Sorry. Just felt the need to put him there because... I don't know. Maybe I felt like tying my answer into uh, um, Pet Cemetery. No, what was the one that we did with the dog? Bad Moon. Previous episode, yeah. Bad Moon. He ain't no Thor. Clovis ain't no Thor. No, though. Clovis is no Thor, but Clovis is still Clovis, and I still love Clovis, and Clovis is one of the first things I think about when I think about this movie. Um, so yeah, gonna have fun with this answer and put Clovis the cat. Yeah, mine uh, has to be uh, Brian Krause. I, I like I said, I, he just makes this film. I mean, say what you will, he's not boring in the movie. There's some actors where I just watch and I'm just like, oh god, they're just so blah. Like they just they just exist on the screen, and I'm just watching it, and I'm just waiting for the scene to end. But I never get that with uh, <laughs> Krause's performance of this movie. Uh, you know, I buy his teen antics and stuff, and I don't buy his scary stuff, but hey, that's why I like it. I just love the fact that he had to sit there with a fucking straight shitty grin and say, here's your hand. <laughs> I mean, or here's yours. Like, <laughs> right. oh, my God. Uh, he said, I mean, it literally sounds like a fucking insurance salesman right there. Like, I agree. <laughs> we should keep our hands to ourselves. Here's yours. Like, it just or like a fucking sales pitchman on a goddamn infomercial. It's just, I don't know. Right. He just makes this movie to me. Uh, you know, there's some other people that give solid performances. Clovis, the cat does a good job. Uh, you know, I, I but he stands, he stands above the rest uh, to me. Like I, I think if you take him out of this film and put a lesser actor in there, I don't think it works now. Yeah. If you put like a legendary actor in there who actually is going to creep me the fuck out. Yeah. That would probably work in a different way. But as far as like an awesomely bad, entertaining type way, I mean, he pulls it off in such an awesome, uh, just with such an awesome performance. I mean, it definitely stands out. I just love the delivery of when he's doing all this crazy shit. It just works for me. Totally. All right. Well, we can move on then. Got a couple more categories to work on. First one is our exclusive category for the Halloween season. R.I.P. Rest in peace. All right, my favorite death in this movie belongs to... Hmm, who am I going to give this award to? Maybe, maybe it is uh, Fallows. Um, Glenn Shaddix's character. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm going to go with that character. I'm going to go with that death scene. I'm going to go with his death. We talked about it fucking 20 times this episode already. So here's 21 times. The the, the hand and the the, the whole chase scene. Because it's got that old school horror element to it. Because you get, you know, a scare. He fucks his hand up. And then that entails a chase. Something that we don't get in this movie really. It's a a good old-fashioned hard chasing between a victim and the killer. So that's my answer for this. I'm going with uh, the death of Mr. Fallows as my RIP for this film. How about you? 
Yeah, it, this one's a tough one because there's, there's so many memorable ones. You know, you got Mr. Fallows with Here's Your Hand. You've got Corncob. You've got uh, Pencil and then Gunshot with, uh, you know, the officer. It's just so many to pick from. But, you know, I'm going to go a little different. I'm going to go with um, Charles Grady when he gets attacked by the cat because that's essentially what kills him. He gets attacked by Clovis because I just... I don't know. I just find it so hilarious. Like you got this guy in makeup and you have him like struggling with this fake cat. And I would just like to be a fly on the wall on a set anytime anybody's filming anything like this, because it just looks hilarious to me. And it just seems like it'd be funny. Like, I, I like the fact that like if you're reading the synopsis, he gets killed by a fucking cat. Like, that's what kills him. So uh, I'm picking that. I, I just love the fact that fucking Clovis gets his revenge, avenges his <laughs> owner, and he gets that motherfucking bad guy. He starts scratching the shit out of him. So I, I love that part. Let's move on to final effect treatment. Ow. On a scale of one. Ow. On a scale. Ah. On a scale. Ow. On a scale of one to ten. <laughs> on a scale of one to ten. Give me the damn veggies. What do you think? All right. I'm giving this three stars. When the film gets going, it's bad shit crazy. I really enjoy laughing along with the film and enjoying all the quirks involved. It's a very unapologetic horror film that dives right into things and just goes for it. McGarris seems to run into the trouble separating the comedy and the horror at times, but at the end of the day, it's just a harmless creature feature from the mind of Stephen King. I used to hate this film, but now I've got a newfound admiration for it, and I've definitely, and I'll definitely recommend it to everyone listening to this episode. Check it out at least once. It's not for everyone, but you'll never know until you know. Three stars. For my uh, final rating, I'm going to give this one something a little different. I'm going to do two different ratings. My first rating I'm going to give for a straight up horror movie, just like your regular run of the mill horror movie. I'm going to give the movie one and a half stars. By no means scary, creepy, none of that. Like even as a kid, no, no point was I like, oh, man, I'm worried about that character. Oh, man, that creeped me out. Or, oh, that right, was, right. you know, that was scary. None of that. So I'll give a one and a half out of five. But for my second rating as the Stephen King batshit crazy meter, enjoy enjoyable fun ride time, I'm going to give it four stars out of five because goddamn this movie is entertaining. So if you blend those together, four and one and a half, I'm going to give it a solid two and a half total. So I think it evens out. I like out. it. I, I think it evens out. I'm going to blend the score, make it two and a half. Um, you know, this movie has flaws. This movie isn't for everybody. I think for most of your general public, people aren't going to like it. I think if I showed this to, uh, like, say my brother, I think he would just, like, put his head in his hand and just say, what the fuck are we watching? <laughs> I, I, I really do. Like, I, I think a lot of people would just be like, why am I watching this? But I think if you're, like, a movie nerd or a horror nerd, you're going to get enjoyment out of this. Or not even really that. Just somebody who appreciates um, uh, movies, especially bad movies. I think you'll get plenty of enjoyment out of this. I think it... It's a good ride. I think it's unique. I mean, the worst sin a movie can be is fucking boring. You know, the worst thing to me is like a middle of the road. OK, movie. There's nothing that bad, but nothing great. Characters are OK. Like, that's the worst to me. I'll take fucking bad any day of the week. This movie has some good spots in it, like we mentioned before, like the effects and some of the acting. And I think the base story actually isn't that bad overall. 
but uh, there's just so many odd <laughs> turns and odd choices between having the main characters be uh, susceptible to cats, having, uh, you know, just random scenes out of nowhere, out of chance, just having your actor lead monster just give lines where he sounds like he's just ordering a cup of coffee. I mean, it's just like there's just so many odd choices I don't fully understand, but hey, it comes together and makes an entertaining movie. So I think if you're into that type of thing or into horror, I think you'll definitely get enjoyment. And if anything, this movie will stick with you. I don't think anybody would watch this and quickly forget about it. So, you know, to me, that's a mark of a good movie one way or another, whether that was what they were intending to do or not. uh, You know, this one is memorable. And it sticks with me and it's definitely a fun ride. So that's why I'll give it the blended score of a two and a half five. And that's going to be a wrap on our Stephen King Sleepwalkers Deep Dive, a film that still gets that home effects seal of approval, no matter how fucking insane it is. One down, many more to follow. Check out our ever-growing collection of previous episodes on your podcast service of choice or over at thefilmeffectpodcast.com. And please like, subscribe, and follow us whether it's on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, no matter what, all links in the episode notes. You can reach out to us by mail, thefilmeffectpodcast at gmail.com, or by messaging us directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Ratings and reviews, they really help our podcast out, and we'd really be appreciative for all of your ratings and reviews. And speaking of, you can now rate and review our show directly on our official Facebook page. Coming up. Halloween Horathon 2 Dead by Pod wants you to be afraid. Be very afraid as we break down the classic David Cronenberg creature film The Fly from 1986, starring Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, and John Getz, who we just talked about back in our social network episode. Until then, I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this has been the Halloween Horathon 2 Dead by Pod on the Film Effect Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back real soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. See you guys.